Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. If you are right now in the midst of pulling up to a deli, a diner, a coffee shop to purchase yourself a cup of coffee because you have a long drive home over the next four hours and you are worried you might not be able to stay awake. If you are someone that is working right now and you are brewing yourself a K-cup of Java because you're concerned that you may not be able to stay awake, Save yourself the effort. Save yourself the money. There will be no caffeine necessary for you to stay awake for the next four hours. The next four hours are going to be riveting, exciting, entertaining, exhilarating, and really educational. Uh, This is going to be a show for the ages. Let me tell you what's coming up. Well, first, I'll tell you what's coming up immediately. It is Friday morning, and as we start each and every Friday morning, we begin with... The Other Side of Midnight proudly presents Ask Frank. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. anything. That's right. Whatever you have questions about, now is the time to ask them. I will do my best to answer. You have questions about film, television, books, business, radio, the business of radio, cocktails, advice, my personal history, pro wrestling, gambling, Atlantic City, local politics, national politics, restaurants, New York. The criminal justice system, aliens, the mob, hypothetical questions, relationships, my personal preferences, baseball, the culture at large, religion, foreign policy, or anything else that you can think of, now is the time to ask. All you have to do is dial 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. And now is the time to dial because there are seven, count them, seven open lines, but they are about to fill up quickly, so dial now. Uh, we're going to try and give preferential treatment to anybody that has a good phone line, to anybody that's a new caller, to anybody that uh, has a creative question. In fact, to sweeten the pot a little bit, whoever comes up with the most interesting and creative question this hour will be, as determined by Matt Blaze, who's returned from his one-day sabbatical, and uh, Ryan and Alex Barnard, will be gifted a complimentary piece of The Other Side of Midnight merchandise, something really nice from the WABC radio store. And if you want to just purchase whatever's there yourself and not worry about having to ask an intelligent question, you can go to WABCRadioStore.com. Now, let me tell you what else is coming up. Two o'clock hour. Very exciting. Julian Assange's brother, Gabriel. Gabriel, um, he has a different last name. It's uh, technically his half-brother. Gabriel Shifton is going to be here. He's going to join me live from Berlin to discuss Julian Assange's case and his extradition to the United States. That's in the 2 o'clock hour. 
3 o'clock, we have denunciations, as we do each and every Monday morning. Uh, excuse me, each and every Friday morning, we're going to call shenanigans on the people that I need to call shenanigans on, the people, the places, the entities that have done something bad. And uh, I'll explain who that is coming up at 3 o'clock. Hopefully your name is not on it. And then a guy that has been denounced multiple times on this program, Jimmy Burke, the former police chief of Suffolk County, uh, also turned out to be one of the biggest criminals in the history of Suffolk County. How does a guy like Jimmy Burke become a, a total criminal? How does he become the top cop in Suffolk County? How does he become the police chief? Was he a criminal first that became a police chief? Or was he a cop that somehow went astray and lost his way? We're going to talk about that with Gus Garcia Roberts, a veteran investigative reporter and the author of the new book, Jimmy the King, Murder, Vice, and the Reign of a Dirty Cop. You're not going to want to miss that, but we will begin first with your questions at 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. First person to call in was Pete in Piscataway. It's that away. Hello, Pete. Hi, Frank. From the old Batman series with Adam West, who are your three favorite villains or villainesses? Um, three favorites. Uh, it's got to be Frank Gorshin as the Riddler. It's got to be um, Burgess Meredith as Penguin. And then, honestly, I love all the women that played Catwoman. I found them all so um, evil but so sexy. Uh I, I, you know, you take your pick, Eartha Kitt, Julie Newmar, whomever. Uh, it doesn't matter who. Catwoman, all the all the actresses that played Catwoman. Oh, I like the Mad Hatter, small one, but he's a villain. Hey, uh, absolutely. There's a lot of great villains on that show, uh, played by a lot of great actors. You had Vincent Price. You had um, uh, I, I, Otto Preminger. You had a lot of terrific actors. Uh, as uh, as villains on that show. It's a great question, and I like that show. And I don't know if you heard, Pete, and thanks for the call. I don't know if you heard my interview with Michael Uslin, who's produced every Batman movie since 1989. But he said one of the things that really drove him to get the Batman rights was how much he hated that TV show. He loved the comic, was really excited for the TV show to come out, and then he saw, to his horror, that they were doing it as sort of a campy comedy not as a drama, and it drove him crazy, and that's why he became so driven to get the rights to the film and to be able to make a much darker version of Batman. I like the darker Batman, although I haven't seen the new one, and I didn't see uh, the Ben Stiller Batman versus Superman either, but uh, I think there's room for the campy, comedic Batman as well. Ben, ben Affleck. You like him? No, you said Ben Stiller. Ben Affleck. Oh, Ben Stiller. Ben Stiller. I, ben could see, I could see Ben Stiller playing uh, Batman. <laughs> you probably Batman. could play a good Batman, actually. 800-848-WABC. Devin is in Yonkers. Hello, Devin. Hey, um, so I just wanted to ask you, uh, with the differences between the left and the right in this country getting, getting more and more, you know, a boiling point when it comes to things like the border, LGBT uh, issues, Gun control, the war on terror, taxes, energy independence, how we you know, teach our children in school, free speech on the Internet, policing, defund the police. With, with all of these differences becoming so extreme, I'm wondering if you would agree that we need a national divorce to avoid a civil war. Uh, meaning the red states becoming one country and the blue states becoming another? 
Yeah, and how quickly the Democrats will come begging for refugee status to the red, to the red states. I, I just don't see how people can find middle ground anymore. Well, and I feel I, like I, yeah, we're getting I, more and more insane. Yeah, I, I've looked at this, and there's been a lot written on it. I, I don't think that's a good idea because, um, one, there are a number of issues that the left and the right – end up coming together on like we're going to talk about the Assange case next hour and it's so interesting you listen to Tucker Carlson he sounds like Amy Goodman you know we've been talking a lot about Russia and Ukraine um, you know when I talk to Ralph Nader he sounds like Pat Buchanan uh, when, when you when you talk about trade Bernie Sanders sounds a lot like uh, Donald Trump you know, when you talk about the war in Iraq uh, Ron Paul sounds a lot like um, you know Robert Byrd used to sound like so I think you know there's a whole bunch of list of things that the left and the right disagree on, but there's also a whole bunch of common areas that uh, that people who are on the left and the right do agree upon, especially when you strip away the cable news, the pro-wrestling aspect of things like cable news, which I think only serve to divide people. And additionally, look, uh, you, you know, I live in a in a blue state like New York, but my community happens to be a red county. So what is Staten Island going to do? Is that going to ally itself with the with the country that that Texas and Alabama and West Virginia are a part of? No, I mean, it becomes impractical at a certain point. And look, as we found out during the Civil War, the things that are made in the United States and the commerce that's conducted in the United States, where it crosses blue state and red state borders. So I think the much better solution is to have people, even if they can't agree, find a way to get along with one another. So I am not in favor of a national divorce. However, I will say this. You know what my attitude is if a state wants to leave the United States, no matter what the state is. And this is one of my great problems with Lincoln. If a state wants to leave the United States and join another country or become their own country, you know what my attitude is? Good luck. Good luck and good riddance. We don't need you. You don't want to be part of our country anymore. You don't want to be part of the great American experiment. Good luck. Uh, to paraphrase the preacher, in to quote the preacher in Blazing Saddles, you're on your own. 800-848-WABC. Let me say hello to Rob in New Jersey. Hello, Rob. Yeah, hi, Frank. Hi. I wanted to know, in the game Risk, like, what do you think the best strategy is? Are you think one of those guys that, like, take over Australia and just sit there and go for Brazil? I, I like to go for a continent early uh, because I like getting the extra pieces early in the game. So I like to go for a continent, whether it's Australia or uh, another smaller continent that you can um, – you, you can take over if you concentrate your armies there and still benefit from the extra pieces. Like so maybe, it, I mean, look, you're not going to be able to do it with Asia. You're not going to be able to do it with, uh, with, with Africa in all likelihood. So I try to go for either South America or, or North America. And if, if neither of those are in play, then I go for Australia. And then I think the key to risk, first of all, you need luck, but – the, the key to risk is discipline. You have to be disciplined enough to um, make an attack 
Try and win a territory and get your card at the end of your turn. Don't try to conquer the world in one turn and uh, just do the best you can. Make strategic alliances or at least strategic non-aggression packs where you can and uh, and do the best you can. But ultimately, just like in the real world, a lot of it depends on uh, on luck. It's a great question, though, Rob. 800-848-9222-1-800-848-W. ABC Sydney is in Yonkers. Hello, Sydney. Hey, how you doing, Frank? I'm great, thank you. So, yeah, I got a question concerning Star Trek and the Star Wars. You ever think in the future they'll merge together in a motion picture? Motion you know, picture? that is so interesting. Uh, if you would have asked me this ten or fifteen years ago, I would have said no way. However, I could see that happening. The way they are churning out Star Trek product and the way they're churning out Star Wars product and how both of these entities, Paramount and Disney, which now owns Star Wars, are are constantly trying to find content to feed their streaming services and how both of these companies are co- trying to come up with something that makes their streaming service worth uh, subscribing to. I could see a scenario where there's either a limited partnership between Paramount and Disney for some sort of a crossover, or I could even see a scenario where one day Paramount and Disney merge and uh, there is some sort of a a mother of all science fiction films. I I absolutely could see it happening. Maybe it's something that uh, goes into a a parallel universe or something. I I could absolutely see something like that happening. Yeah, I do too. I think it would probably be the next... uh biggest or highest grossing film if they ever did this. Yeah, and I'm so sure you and that. I aren't the only people that have thought about that, Sydney. Uh, great question. 800-848-WABC 1-800-848-9222 Mark's in Garden City. Hello, Mark. Good morning, Frank. Morning. Frank, uh, I am a big fan of egg salad. Mm. And so my question is, what is the secret of your Aunt Camille's egg salad, and can I possibly get the recipe? Well, we posted the video on uh, on uh, on YouTube and on my Facebook page, uh, so you can watch the video on, on YouTube. Uh, and I have to tell you, though, I've seen the video, I've seen what she, she's done, and I, it doesn't look like she's doing anything special. It, I mean, there's not really much even in the way of uh, of spices. So I have maintained... That um, and again, I'll, I'll I'll link to it again right now if people want to see it. Actually, if you just search Aunt Camille's egg salad, it comes up on my uh, YouTube. Uh, if you just search that on YouTube, it comes up, or just search Morano Vision and it comes up. Um, but um, I maintain that there is something that she held back from viewers because I try this egg salad. I just tried a little bit before the show, in spite of the fact that I was trying to resist it. And there is something in this egg salad that's not. In her recipe, there there has to be because it doesn't taste like any other egg salad. In fact, the guys that work here, the Glenn are are one of our chief sales guys. He said he watched the video and he said, "All right, it doesn't look like anything special." And then he tried it. He says, "This that's not it. She's doing something yeah. else." I don't know what it is. I, I I don't know if um maybe it's the fact that she's using full fat Hellman's mayonnaise. Maybe that's it, or maybe it's something else. But uh, I don't think we're getting any other answers out of her. I think you got to watch the video and determine for yourself whether you believe her. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two 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 one two three open lines as we do and ask Frank anything. Bill is in Elmhurst. Hello, Bill. 
Hey, Frank. Okay, here's my question. Mm-hmm. I know you're gonna you're gonna say you don't want to answer it. How old are you? Uh, yeah, I've I've made clear from the very first edition. I'm not answering that question. Okay. Well, I got your date of birth anyway. So thanks. Great show, though. Thanks, Bill. Eight hundred eight four eight WABC. Mario is in Manhattan. Hello, Mario. Yes. Good morning, sir. Uh, I'd like to know: Are you allowed to divulge the strategy? that made your programming and the program that precedes you go from a Monday to Friday and now go from a Sunday to a Thursday. Well, I was allowed to divulge that. Yeah. I mean, I was always Monday through Friday. I was never Sunday through. I was never, um, I was never Tuesday through um, uh, Saturday. So I was always Monday through Friday since I started in September of 2020. And I think um, when Dominic started, you know, I would follow him four days a week. And I don't know whose idea it was, if it was mine or Dominic's or John's or someone else. I think everyone said, well, doesn't it make sense if I'm on after Dominic to be on after Dominic every day? So I, I don't mm-hmm. I don't know if it was Dominic's idea or mine or or Matt Meany's or, or John's, quite honestly. I, I don't think it was some grand strategy. I think it just took people a while to realize that uh, – that, you know, Monday meant different things to different people. I got it. Thank uh, you, sir. Thank you, Mario. 800-848-WABC. Uh, an unprecedented one, two, three, four, five open lines, which we never usually have this early in Ask Frank Anything, but you can go ahead and call in right now. Janet is in Manhattan. Hello, Janet. Oh, hi, Frank. I have a foodie question also. So you have your chef's hat on? Ready to answer my chef's question? Okay, I'm going to try and start making my own coffee at home. I used to use Instant, right? And I can't remember how to buy coffee. I remember there were two kinds of grind, at least, right? There was drip grind and the other kind. What was the other kind? Was it regular? The kind you use in a pot. You don't don't know coffee. I I don't know. I know about drinking it, but uh, I know there's different different levels of... um, Powderiness, um, or yeah, yeah, right. There's uh, there's uh, medium grind, medium fine grind, coarse grind, oh. but I honestly don't know which one mean w- produces what kind of product. Right. Okay. Well, that's what I was wondering. I think you you answered. It's probably medium coarse or coarse because what they sent me from the store was the fine, and for that you would need filter paper, right? You you pour, you know, that's the drip grind right. where you put it on the filter paper and you pour the water over it, and it drips down into the pot below, and the and the fine powder never drips down, so that's good. But if you have a, a percolator, the holes in the in the drain in the strainer in there are big. And if you put the fine powder in there, it's just going to go right down to the water. So you, you kind of answered it. I think I need grind, coarse grind, or medium coarse. Yeah, I wish I That's could be the- more helpful on this one, Janet. I'm sorry. 800-848-WABC. Igor is in Fairfield, New Jersey. Hello, Igor. Hey there, Frank. Hey, given the fact that you have this overnight radio show and you've had a success with this, has this has this changed your level of uh, of, of recognition when you're out in public? Do people recognize your voice, your name now, that um, they didn't before? I, you know, that's a good question. I don't think so. You know, I was on a, um, maybe, maybe, I, I, uh, not not in any discernible um, way. Sometimes, you know, people will, will see my name or a friend of mine will mention my name to somebody and then uh, they'll say, oh, Frank Morano, the radio guy. And maybe there's a little more recognition than that. But, uh, you know, I was on as a like a cast member, a couple of uh, other very popular radio shows 
really for the better part of the last 15 years. So I think if you're in the New York area and you're a talk radio fan, a lot of people already knew who I was, you know, anyway. Um, so I, I um, maybe probably a little bit, but not in any way that's made any sort of meaningful difference in my day to day interactions with people. Appreciate it, Frank. Thank you. Be well. Thank you. You too, Igor. Have a good weekend. 800-848-WABC. Mike is in the Poconos. Hello, Mike. Up in the morning, Frank. Always a good show. Thank you. Uh, I was down in West Palm Beach for like a year and a half. Now I'm, I'm back uh, north of the Mason-Dixon. I'm outside the Mount Airy Casino, and, uh, oh, I can tell you stories, man. I can tell friends, you know, going to Atlantic City like you did. Um it's a roller coaster ride. It's playing uh, a little blackjack and a little roulette, but it's a roller coaster ride, man. You know, and it's like a Jerry Springer show in there sometimes. But uh, uh, here's a question. Longtime Med fan, I told you, producer, long time. Mm. I was at the 69 World Series, the last game when I was 15. And other classic games. I'm glad the conspiracy theory is over with your son, Carmine, because Mr. Met, when I was listening, he always had good, <laughs> good shows. And I'm saying, geez, what the hell happened? Could it be, you know, your dad or or somebody else who's a Yankee fan? Could they go that far? I mean, come on. And I'll tell you this. My dad, uh, eight years ago, uh, passed away, 88. 52 years, thank you, uh, with Grand Union Supermarkets, manager, district manager. Okay? Crazy Brooklyn Dodger fan and Mets fan. And I'll tell you this. uh, His name was Carmen. Everyone used to call him Carmine. And every time I hear the name Carmine, I have a smile on my face because, it, you know, it takes me back. But, uh, hey, Frank, I'm sure you'd be a good dad, and I'm sure Carmine will be a future Met fan. Let's go Met. Oh, the poor good kid. The, the poor kid. The poor kid. Let's hope. Uh, I, I'm a longtime Met fan as you are, Mike, but uh, I would love to see him save the suffering that I have experienced my entire life. I'll, I'll let him pick. Any other team, let him be a Yankee fan or a Phillies fan or a Braves fan. Let him not choose the inevitable heartbreak that Met fans who bleed blue and orange are forced to endure every year. We'll continue with your questions in just a moment. 800-848-9222. We're in the midst of an Ask Frank Anything straight ahead. WABC. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Britney Spears, now a married woman. 
breaking the hearts of all the guys out there. And uh, now that she's married, she is now back on Instagram. I'll tell you, it looks great for 40 years old. Looks great at any age. But uh, I'm a Britney Spears fan. I'm glad she's been liberated now. I'm glad she's doing well. So does she have a little some issues? Is she a little wacky? Absolutely. Uh, so am I. So uh, I think we're kindred spirits in that respect. All right. We are uh, answering your questions on any subject, as we do each and every Friday morning for the first hour of our program. We call this edition of uh, The Other Side of Midnight. The Other Side of Midnight proudly presents Ask Frank. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. And whoever comes up with the most creative question this hour, um, as determined by Matt Blaze. Ryan and Alex Barnard will be gifted a the other side of midnight piece of merchandise, a uh, piece of swag, uh, probably a shirt for now. Jackson, Stanford, Connecticut. What's your question, Jack? Frank, first time, long time. Make a shmink of dildos, dear. Hey, uh, <laughs> the Atlantic City. I love Atlantic City. My honeymoon there back in the 80s. The problem with Atlantic City is too far for me. I can't go down all the time. Sure. What is the song? At the beginning of your Atlantic City report, are you don't have any idea what they're talking? What you what wait, wait, so about? Wait, you 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 um you um you broke up there. I heard, I heard you say, "What is the song during the Atlantic City report?" And then you made a comment that I didn't hear. What was it? Well, I said most of us don't understand anything about that song. It's a Philadelphia thing, and uh. I wonder if you could explain the whole song to us. Yeah, well, so the song is called, and thanks for the call, Jack. The song is called Atlantic City, and it was written by and originally recorded by Bruce Springsteen. We don't play the Springsteen version, which is uh, which is great, but um, we play the version by the band, which I think is even better. And so there you go. That's the That's the band version. Now, again, the Springsteen version is great, but the song is about a young couple escaping to Atlantic City, um, and, it, and it's kind of a sad song. It deals with the inevitable death of the man in the song. Now, when he says the chicken man, that's, um, uh, I believe, Philip Testa, who was a big um, a big Philadelphia mobster who, di- who did get blown up. And so the song's about the guy's inevitable death as the guy in the song takes on a relationship with organized crime and takes a job with organized crime. And uh, it's basically about that. It's about their relationship, about Atlantic City being a place that you escape to to get away from other problems, and the fact that this relationship is very star-crossed. It's almost doomed to fail because this guy is involved with the rackets. So, um, you know, remember, it came out in the early 80s. So there was a lot of uncertainty about how legalized gambling would play in Atlantic City uh, because it was still relatively new, only five years old at that point. So the song does deal a lot of the, with the uncertainty of what legalized gambling is going to mean for Atlantic City. So uh, I think it's a terrific song, honestly. I think it sounds great. It's got a great message, and it shows you... Honestly, um, what a great songwriter Bruce Springsteen is. 800-848-9222. Bill, also in Connecticut. Bill, what's your question? Bill. All right, Bill has other priorities. Staying in the state of uh, Connecticut, Josh is in Connecticut. Hello. Oh, hey, Frank. How are you? Thanks for always taking my call. Sure. Uh, I call 
so I call a few times in the past in the bagel survey, and I'm the guy with the Tesla. Um, so I had a question for you. Uh, that statement that Biden made today with that whispering comment about please lower your prices. I mean, what was he trying to do with that? Turn the American people on these poor guys that are trying to make a living at their gas station? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I think, yes, I think he was trying to, to some extent, dodge responsibility for inflation by passing the buck to the oil companies. I think that was a big part of it. Now, uh, I think some of the inflation, not all of it, but some of the inflation is due to people, companies, manufacturers, not the oil companies specifically, but manufacturers in general, using this as an opportunity to raise prices and make money. Because we see that reflected in the profits that a lot of these companies are making. So I don't think that he was off base in suggesting that some people are saying, oh, inflation, 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 and then they're using this as an opportunity to raise prices and put the money in their pocket. But uh, look, I mean, we see what's happening with energy uh, right now. And uh, I, I think if he were to work with the energy companies instead of demonizing them, then I think he might find them to be a bit more cooperative to the things that he wants to do. But, yeah, I think it was politics, pure and simple. I think he wanted to make clear that the American people knew, don't blame me, blame that guy or, or gal. 800-848-9222, that's 1-800-848-WABC. One open line if you want to jump on board with a question. Al is in Yonkers. Hello, Al. Yeah, hi, Frank. Uh, thank you for taking my call. You know, this Tuesday is uh, primary day, and the governor uh, is running in the primary, and her running mate uh, has a possibility. Uh, he gave up a safe a seat. His name was a Congressman Delgado. Yes. And they say that he could possibly be defeated in his primary. I wanted to ask you a trivia question. When was the last time that occurred with the Democrats, uh, as you recollect? I believe I, I, I believe the last time that it happened was uh, 1982 when Mario Cuomo's running mate, Carl McCall, was defeated by uh, Stan the Invisible Man Lundin. Actually, it was uh, Del Bello. Oh, okay. Uh, Al DeBello. Okay. Bello, yeah, he ran with Koch. Got it. Okay. Well, then, then it was still 1982. That's great. Thanks, Frank. Have a good night. Sure thing, Al. Thank you. 800-848-9222. I always discourage people. I mean, if they want to call with a question, fine. But, um, you know, I always, I mean, a trivia question, but I, I always discourage people from picking a trivia question because that's what happens. Either I know the answer or I don't know the answer. So if I know the answer, then the conversation's over. If I don't know the answer, then you tell me the answer, and the conversation is still over. I don't see, uh, you know, again, and I'm all for trivia. I like trivia as a, as a contest methodology or something. If you're going to do trivia, like one time a guy tried to do um, the $1,000 Minute, the Frank edition of the $1,000 Minute. That was clever, at least. But if you do just a random trivia question, uh, I don't know. I don't see where that goes. If you want to do it, you can. It's just I don't see where it goes. 800-848-9222. Kevin is in New Jersey. Hello, Kevin. Yeah, Frank. Uh, you're a Staten Island guy, so I figured you would know this. And uh, I love the movie, so I always wanted to know about it. Uh, the movie Two Family House. Mm -hmm. 
Are you familiar with it? Yeah, that's with, um, you know, the the fellow that plays uh, Jackie April on The Sopranos and uh, the woman Correct. that plays Charmaine. I, I like I like the film a lot. Uh, very good movie. And there's other uh, members of uh, Sopranos in yeah. it as well. Mm-hmm. But they say at the end that it's a true story. Is it? Do you know? Uh, you know, that's a good question. I actually don't know. Uh, but that I didn't know. I didn't know that they uh, that they claim that. I will. Uh, I will uh, look into that. That's it actually makes the movie even more special at the end. He says it's a true story and that the bar still exists. And I was wondering if you had ever been and if it still does and yeah. where it is. Uh, I guess you don't know. It's a good question. So they say it's based on the story of um, the uncle of the writer and the director of that film, Raymond De Felita. Um, and if that's true, uh, I don't know. But I'll look into that because I do like that picture. And um, there is a bar that that reminds me of that's on Staten Island. But I, I will uh, I'll look into that, actually. And if, if you email me, Kevin, I'll work on getting you an answer over the weekend, because uh, if there's one thing that I can get an answer on, it's Staten Island related, you know, trivia questions. Great, because I'd love to go and check it out. Yeah, if it still does. Exist. Yeah, me too. Me too. Uh, email me. I'll, I'll, I'll find that out. Thank you. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to, is this Yunkle in New Jersey? Yes. Okay. Uh, I wonder what was your favorite question you'd wish to be asked, and, and then I want to ask it to you. You know, I, I've gotten this question before, and I really, I, do, I really don't know. I mean, questions are one of those things that you really don't know how good they are until, until someone asks it. Because if there was a piece of information that I wanted to share because I thought it would be interesting to the audience or I thought it would be entertaining or educational, then I wouldn't necessarily wait for a question to share it. I would just uh, unsolicited offer it to the audience myself. So I don't know that I could, I could, I don't know that I could think of one. Uh, and I have, I have another question. Sure. Why do you want Curtis? You always bash each other, you know, th- um, on Saturday night. Curtis goes for hours so you bash him and you bash him back. Why are you saying, why do you compliment each other? First of all, I, I don't bash Curtis. Uh, Curtis, he <laughs> playfully pokes fun at me. I don't find it offensive in the least. Curtis is one of my closest friends. I talk to him just about every day. There's no Curtis bashing. If there, If I poke fun at Curtis, it's because... You know, it's it's like how I would my brother. You know, when I when I when I take a shot at my brothers on air, it's done with love. That's the same thing with Curtis. There's no there's no Curtis bashing on my part at all. I am a uh, remain a big Curtis fan, and I think if Curtis were to ask you uh, were to tell you the truth, he would tell you that uh, I was an integral part of not only his mayoral campaign but really everything that he's done. Over the course of the last 20 years, with the exception of the Guardian Angels, anything radio related, anything politically related, anything in terms of the media. So we, we have a, a long history. There's no Curtis bashing on my part at, at all. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Corey in Palm Bay, Florida. Hello, Corey. Hello, Frank. Please stop bashing Curtis. No, I'm good joking. Uh, my Very question fair. was, um, what kind of effect do you think we would have if we had a um, Spanish-speaking conservative media uh, well, in right in print or on the news? 
Well, in Florida, in Florida, because of the heavy Cuban population, which tends to be conservative, there are a lot of Spanish language radio stations that are pretty conservative. Um, but it's a good question, though, Corey. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I, I could well, only speculate. You know, we don't have anything in New York or yeah. tri-state area. Everything is pretty much, you know, uh, straight liberal because my grandfather only spoke Italian and Spanish. And all of those papers and, all the, you know, CNN, yeah. And all that they have, but there's no real conservative or um, yeah. So Corey, I don't know uh, that I can. I don't know that I can really answer your question. I mean, I, I guess you'd have to take it up with the folks that own Radio Wado, right? Or uh, may, you know, maybe um, launch your own Spanish language station if you want to do that. Eight hundred eight four eight W A B C. Neil is on Staten Island. Hello, Neil. Frank, uh, our governor, Pokal, to me, seems to be a self-centered uh, incompetent. And yet they're saying how far ahead she is in the polls over the uh, Republicans. I'm worried, Frank. I mean, are we in the state that no matter what the heck happens, we're going to get a Democrat no matter how competent they are? Because she's just a waste. I, I think for the I think for the time being, that's very likely in statewide elections. I, I think there are some republic. I think it is possible for a Republican to win, but in, in order for a Republican to win, I think you need upwards of thirty percent of the vote uh, from New York City. And I think the only kind of Republican that can get that kind of a vote is a liberal Republican in the vein of a, a Mike Bloomberg, uh, a John Katsimatidis, and a Harry Wilson, right? I don't see any pro-life, Trump-supporting Republican being able to win statewide right now. I, I just don't. I mean, there are a lot of people that uh, – and look, I would vote for Andrew Giuliani for governor. I would vote for um, – you know, I would vote for Harry Wilson for governor. I would vote for a number of conservative people for statewide office. But I don't think the the fact that we're in a state that was that's upwards of 60 percent of the people that feel very differently. I think it's very it's going to be very tough. I think it's going to be very tough. I think you, you almost need it's like catch. It's like getting struck by lightning, having a Republican win statewide in the current circumstances. Now, there are a lot of purple areas in this state where I could see turning red. You know, we saw that in a lot of the big local elections last year. There are now five Republicans in the New York City Council. The Nassau County DA, now a Republican. The Nassau County uh, County Executive is now a Republican. The Suffolk County DA, now a Republican. I could see the Republicans winning the Suffolk County Executive spot. I could see them winning back the Westchester County DA spot. I think there are a number of purple areas that I could see going back to red. But New York City is so blue under the current circumstances that I think it's going to be very difficult for a pro-life Republican, especially in the aftermath of this Supreme Court decision today on abortion, to be able to win statewide. It's not what I'm rooting for, but that's my honest analysis of the situation. Republicans are maybe more popular than ever with certain portions of the population, but with the state as a whole, the state as a whole feels differently. So, yeah, uh, the solution, as I see it, is really nonpartisan elections. Don't have a Democratic candidate and a Republican candidate. Just have people run as people. 
and then have them put their issues out there, have them put their biographies out there, and let them connect with voters, not because they're a Democrat or Republican, but because they have the best vision for the state. That's my greatest hope. And that's really the thing that I think can save this state and this city. 800-848-9222. Stacy's in plain view. Hello, Stacy. Hi. I was wondering where you are from this city. Where do you live? Staten Island, born and raised. All right. I just wondered. Yes. Well, there you have it. There you go. Yeah, I am one of the few first-generation native Staten Islanders who has chosen to remain on Staten Island. You have a lot of people that have moved to Staten Island from somewhere else, mostly Brooklyn, but occasionally Queens or Manhattan. That's how my parents are. They moved there from Brooklyn. Then you have a lot of people that were born on Staten Island. Their parents were born on Staten Island. Their grandparents were born on Staten Island. Their family's been on Staten Island for 100 years, and their family will continue to be on Staten Island for 100 years. And then you have most of the people that I grew up with, which is they were born there, and then as soon as they're old enough to move somewhere else, they move somewhere else. Well, um, this is an area where I I, uh, I concur with the Sliwa philosophy of improve, don't move. Are there, are there things about Staten Island that should be improved? Absolutely. I don't think the solution is just to pick up and leave and move to Pennsylvania or New Jersey or Brooklyn. Uh, I want to stay, and I'm going down with the ship if necessary. 800-848-9222. Bob is in the Bronx. Hello, Bob. All right. Thank you. Hi. You're welcome. Have you read The Janine Machine by Richard Blasberg or Twisted Justice at CNN.com? I, I did. They were both the worst books I've ever read. The Richard Blasberg book and the Twisted Justice at CNN.com, they were sensationalistic. They were uh, inflammatory. And, um, you know, I, I, there's a reason that uh, The Janine Machine by Richard Blasberg never became the bestseller that uh, a better written book would have. It's incredibly poorly written. Uh, the, uh, the, me- the methods are sloppy and the conclusions are highly questionable. 800-848-9222. John is in Freehold. Hello, John. Hey, what's up, Frank? Pleasure as always. Thanks. Um, all right, so my question was, um, let's, say, uh, let's say aliens came down and they came to you and they offered you uh, to, the chance to live forever and to come with them and see the secrets of the universe. But you had to leave everybody on Earth behind, your family, friends, everybody. Would you do it? Well, that's actually kind of what happens to um, Wesley Crusher on Star Trek The Next Generation. But no, no. I mean, what good is living forever and knowing the secrets of the universe if you can't share them with your loved ones. I absolutely would not. That's an easy decision. That's an easy question. Gene is in New Jersey. Hello, Gene. Good evening, Frank. Good evening, Gene. How you been? Great. Hey, uh, just a question, just a question, and then I'll hang up and let you answer. Uh, when did uh, vocal aesthetics and tonal quality become so much less important in radio? Uh, I think around, thank you, I think around the time that, uh, and Howard Stern has talked about this, but I think it's around the time that Howard Stern became nationally syndicated. Because before Howard Stern was on in the mornings, every radio station, no matter the format, you could listen from morning until night. They all had DJs that sounded like this. They enunciated perfectly. They had these big, deep, baritone voices, but they had nothing to say. They really, in, I mean, in some, some cases they did, but they had nothing to say. Howard Stern comes out, and he 
is brilliant, a brilliant comic, a brilliant interviewer, a gifted storyteller, an incredibly creative talent. And then once they saw that you could have success uh, marketing someone that didn't sound like this, then radio stations realize, wait a minute. We don't have to have somebody that sounds like an announcer from a 1950s, you know, a 1950s ivory soap commercial to be our morning man. We could actually find people that have something to say. And look, I like people with nice voices. I think one of my favorite hosts to listen to is Mark Simone. I don't think there's a better voice than Mark Simone. John Gambling was so nice to listen to just because of his, the wonderful voice that he had. But... um a lot of the people these days, Jay Diamond, I think, has a terrific, terrific voice. But a lot of the people these days that are very successful, they're not exactly folks that you would call, uh, see as having brilliant voices or great voices. And look, maybe that's an indication that sometimes substance counts more than style, right? Uh, but that's my guess. It was right around the time Howard Stern became a, a monstrous Success. All right. Um, we have one open line. You're welcome to it. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. We're doing an Ask Frank Anything straight ahead. WABC. We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. But then I spent so many nights thinking how you did me wrong. And I grew strong. And I learned how to get along. And so you're back from out of space. I just walked in to find you here with that sad look upon your face. I should have changed that stupid lock. I should have made you leave your key. If I'd have known for just one second, you'd be back to bother me. Oh, now go. I will survive, Gloria Gaynor. So will we all, right? Uh, we are almost through a, surviving another edition of Ask Frank Anything. Coming up next hour, we will talk with Julian Assange's brother. And uh, we are going to talk about what's going on in his case. Uh, a little bit later, we're going to talk with the author of this new book that reads like a novel, but it's true. Uh, it's called Jimmy the King. It's all about the former Suffolk County police chief. Jimmy Burke, who was the police chief who became essentially the biggest criminal in Suffolk County. And what that means for you, are there other Jimmy Burks out there? And how do we know? We'll get into it with Gus Garcia Roberts in the 3 o'clock hour. We're doing an Ask Frank Anything, 800-848-9222. Alyssa is in Manhattan. Hello, Alyssa. Hi, Frank. Good Hi. Morning. morning. I hope you're planning on having a nice, relaxing weekend. Well, it's going to be uh, – we'll, we'll see. Fingers crossed. I don't think this one's going to be as relaxing as I might hope. Okay. Well, let's just hope you get through it with a minimal of stress. Thank you. Okay. My question for you is out of all the qualities that make up Frank, make you who you are, if you could only choose one – which quality would you want to give to your son that ultimately is the definition of his father within him when he grows up? Oh, well, that's a good question. Um, that, um, you know, I think it's one of two. And I don't know which one it would be, so I'm going to name um, name both because I could okay. make a case for either. Um, 
it would either be uh, curiosity and um, and I because I, I, I am really genuinely curious about so many different things. And I see even though that he can't speak yet. I, and I know this may sound silly, but I see even at seven months, he seems so curious about everything. And I really I really see a bit of myself in that. And I really do find that uh, that's a quality of mine that I could see him adopting. But the one which he has no idea about yet, which I hope he will, is to uh, is to respect everybody and not, um, you know, not to, to and to be nice to everybody and not to not to judge anybody. Uh, I have called myself the least judgmental person, you know, on earth, uh, because, you know, I don't think that, uh, you know, because someone is um, has a, a blue collar job or because they've been in prison or because they're a, a certain age or because they're a certain gender or a certain race, that they're any better or worse um, than me. So I would hope that he would have that kind of same spirit of egalitarian respect. Well, that's an excellent philosophy to adopt and a wonderful thing to teach a child. Um, he'll definitely should he adopt that. He'll definitely be one of the great citizens of the future. Well, thank you, Alyssa. Um, might nice. I just ask? I know you don't want to share your age, but would you at least share your um, month and day of birth? I would not. I would not share it. Absolutely not. You guys are not getting this out of me. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Bill is in Huntington. Hello, Bill. Okay. Okay. Which woman is closest to your heart? The barmaid who brings you beer or the librarian who brings you books? Um, I would say these days it's the barmaid uh, because because I do a lot of my own book selection these days. You know, I, I feel like, you know, I become curious about a subject. I just go online and buy the book. It's much more difficult to do that and a much less intimate experience than if you just order a bottle of wine online. To me... You know, there's something very intimate about somebody that would share, that brings you your drink. You can ask them questions about the drink, how long you've been working here, what brought you here. There's something, uh, serving someone a drink is almost like a relationship pressure cooker. It, it's like dog years. It, you you immediately fast track a relationship. There's an expression, and I think it might be in the book, The Modern Gentleman. If it's not there, it might be in The Modern Drunkard, which is also a very good book. And... There's a rule. This is part of my philosophy. Everybody, no matter how handsome or how ugly you are, everybody is 20 to 30 percent more attractive either on stage or behind a bar. Everybody. Those are the only two things that instantly make you more attractive. Really? That's right. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to... Uh, Andrew in New Jersey has been patiently holding. Hello, Andrew. Hi, Frank. I have um, three questions for you. Yes, ready. Um, so my first question is, is this a good enough question to win the best question? So far, no. This wasn't good enough? Oh, so far, no. So far, uh, I, I don't even think you're in the top uh, okay. ten. But it's not my decision. It's uh, Matt Blaze, Alex Barnard, and Ryan. So they may think differently. Oh, okay. And my second question is that we're having like a, a like a not really like a war. It's more of like a skirmish with the bugs on my property, mm -hmm. and they just keep on coming. They don't stop. We we got raid to to raid offered us discounts on chemical weapons. They just keep on coming. They don't stop. Is there anything we can do about it? 
Well, if you email me, I'll connect you with my exterminator, and uh, maybe he'll be able to help. But I do discourage, uh, and my email's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. I do discourage the use of chemical weapons, right? Whether we're talking Russia and Putin, whether we're talking uh, Assad and Syria, I don't think chemical weapons is something that you should use on anybody, right? Um, let me say hello to Patrick in Bridgeport's been waiting a while. Hello, Patrick. Hey, Frank. I got a, a main question and a quick follow-up. Sure. My, my main one is about radio also. Okay. Uh, I came across your show because I can't stand these shows that try to sell me something every eight minutes. Mm-hmm. It's like it's commercials filled with a little bit of content instead of content with a few commercial breaks. So my question is, what determines the amount of advertising? I mean, is it syndication? Uh, I mean, you're number one in your market. You have a commercial break maybe every 20 minutes or so, where these other guys are every eight minutes. Yeah, you know, I think it depends, Patrick. Like, it depends on what show you're listening to, but if it's a national show, um, uh, they're probably they probably have to carry a national spot load as well as a local spot load. So that could be why you're hearing more, um, you know, more spots. A lot of times, also. They like to use the overnight hours as a dumping ground for certain spots that they're obliged to play for whatever reason, but don't have room, don't have uh, inventory for throughout the rest of the day. They don't do that with our show uh, because, and, and with our station in general because the attitude from management and ownership is unless they're paying, don't run it, right? I mean, we don't want clutter on the station. We want, you know, content so that people will want to listen. So uh, that's not one of the top tune-outs in all of radio. But I don't think there I don't think there's one answer to your question. It depends on the format. It depends on the station. Depends on the personality. Uh, depends on the economics of what we're dealing with here. We're very lucky to be owned by a radio company, the Red Apple Media, that has zero debt. Now, I don't know of another radio station in New York that can say that. Maybe one of the foreign language stations, but I don't think so. So the fact that our parent company has zero debt gives us a lot of opportunity for things that a station owned by iHeart or Odyssey or Salem or uh, you name it, uh, Town Square Media, gives us an opportunity to do things that they, they don't get to do. All right, we'll squeeze in at least one more here, maybe two if they're quick, and then we'll defer to uh, Matt, Ryan, and Alex on the best question. Linda is on Long Island. Hello, Linda. Hi, Frank. I just wanted to know, did you find that screw that you were looking for to uh, make that bed? There will be an update. There will be an update Mm -hmm. on that situation at the end of the 2 o'clock hour, Linda, so stay tuned on that. Sarah's in Brooklyn. Hello, Sarah. Yeah, hi. I bet I have the best question. I'd like to know, Frank, by the way, I love your show. Oh, thanks. I would like to know... With the mayor and everybody up in arms with the <laughs> arms with the guns, what's the likelihood of a gun being FedEx to a customer? <laughs> um, that's a good question, and that's one. Let that... me tell you. Yeah. Let me tell you why I asked this question. A couple of weeks ago, FedEx left a note on my door saying that they tried to deliver a package, but they couldn't reach me, which was wrong. I was home. Uh, why they didn't leave it at the door that they usually do. It sounds like I had to sign for it. 
uh, a few days later, again, a note appears that they left. They're trying to give me a package, and I didn't answer the door. So I called FedEx. Now, the package was made out to a different name, a foreign name, totally not anybody that lives in my house. I called FedEx, and I said, listen, I don't know, but there's nobody by this name in this house. So they said, uh, oh, don't worry, it was picked up already. I said, how is that possible? Were they standing outside my house? I, I don't understand this. Well, don't worry. I, I said, I was Sarah, we're just about oh, out of time, uh, but okay. I'm... I'm Long story short, another week a package showed up, and that they left at my door. Uh, Guess what was in it? A gun? I opened it up. It was a gun? There was a gun bag. Oh, boy. Uh, Sarah, thank you for that question if you call it that. Um, Matt Blaze, Ryan, and Alex Barnard, do you have a consensus, a two-thirds majority on the best question? Yes. Sydney and Yonkers. What was his question? Star Wars, Star Trek. That was emerging. a good question. Sydney and Yonkers, call back, and we'll give you a prize. For the rest of you, help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. We're going to talk with Julian Assange's brother in uh, just a little bit about the WikiLeaks case, uh, Gabriel Shipton. He's a filmmaker and uh, Julian Assange's half-brother. And uh, they're uh, trying to extradite Julian Assange to the United States to be prosecuted and to be tried. We're going to go over this case in a big way. I happen to think what is happening to Julian Assange is a travesty. I think that it's, um, I think President Trump should have pardoned him on his way out the door. And I think uh, that uh, the implications for all journalists are pretty frightening if Julian Assange is prosecuted for essentially publishing information. We'll get into it in about 20 minutes. A couple of quick things I did want to bring to your attention. One, a sunspot pointing towards the earth has the potential to cause solar flares. But experts told USA Today it's far from unusual, and they eased concerns over how flares would affect the planet Earth. Active Region 3038, or AR3038, has been growing over the past week. So this is what sunspots do, apparently. Over time, generally, they grow, they go through stages, and then they decay. Sunspots appear darker because they are cooler than other parts of the sun's surface, according to NASA. Sunspots are cooler because they form where strong magnetic fields prevent heat within the sun from reaching its surface. Solar flares, which typically rise from sunspots, are a sudden explosion of energy caused by tangling, crossing, or reorganizing of magnetic fields near sunspots. So the larger and more complex a sunspot becomes, the higher the likelihood is for solar flares. So the sunspot that we're talking about now has doubled in size each day for the past three days. 
and it's currently about two and a half times the size of the Earth. So the sunspot is producing small solar flares. A couple of people have asked me over the last day or two about differences in their radio reception, and I've had no answers. But I think it might be tied to these solar flares related to this sunspot. So the sunspot is producing small solar flares, but does not have the complexity for the largest flares. There's a 30% chance that the sunspot will produce medium-sized flares and a 10% chance that it'll create large flares. So that's where we are. You might be hearing something about the solar flares today, but uh, that's where we are. Now, I do want to comment briefly on the Supreme Court decision yesterday. In a 6-3 to decision, the Supreme Court has voted to strike down New York's century-old law restricting the carrying of concealed firearms. This is the first major Second Amendment decision in more than a decade, and this is a ruling that could lead to more people being able to legally carry guns on the streets of New York. So uh, Justice Thomas wrote the opinion on his birthday, no less, and he said that the law's requirement of New Yorkers who want to permit who want a permit to carry a handgun in public to show proper cause that the weapon is specifically needed for self-defense violates the 14th Amendment by preventing law-abiding citizens with ordinary self-defense needs from exercising their right to keep and bear arms in public. So basically the way it was prior to what the Supreme Court did in New York is it's very difficult to get a concealed carry permit. Usually you have to be famous, you have to be super wealthy, or you have to have a business that involves you transporting a lot of cash. So um, while this is a New York law that they struck down, it's likely to affect a few other states that have similar laws. Uh, California, Hawaii, Maryland, Massachusetts, New Jersey, and Rhode Island. So in a separate opinion, concurring with Thomas, Justice Kavanaugh and Chief Justice Roberts wrote that The ruling does not preclude state and local restrictions on gun ownership by felons and the mentally ill or laws banning the carrying of firearms in sensitive locations like schools and government buildings. So now, apparently, what the state legislature and the city council may do is they may declare any place that has 10,000 people within whatever, a square mile, I think was the term that I heard, they may declare that a sensitive location so that they could prohibit concealed carry permits uh, in those areas. But I don't necessarily think that this is going to be the kind of instant game changer that people on the left and the right are making it out to be. Is it going to be significant? Absolutely. And um, I don't think it's going to be this kind of game changer that a lot of folks are acting like it will be. The deputy police commissioner... John Miller was on the Cats at Night show yesterday with John Katzmatidis and Lydia Serrani and Governor Patterson. And he did a good job, I think, in a non-ideological, non-hysterical way, explaining what this law being struck down actually means for New Yorkers. The first thing is, it doesn't mean anything today. Nothing changes today, nothing changes tomorrow. So let's go through the mechanics of it, because it's actually important. Uh, the Supreme Court took on the issue of whether New York State, as one of the six states in the nation, 
that makes people prove a, a special need to carry a concealed weapon. Whether New York State has that right under the Second Amendment to the Constitution, which guarantees the right to bear arms. So the court ruled that New York State does not have the right to tell people that they have to demonstrate a special need. They just have to demonstrate in order to obtain a legal pistol license for concealed carry that they're not a convicted felon and that they fit the criteria of the license. So that's what the Supreme Court ruled. Now, why is nothing different today after that ruling? Uh, Because what the court did was, after making that finding, they sent the case back down to the Court of Appeals here in the Second Circuit, where the original case was brought, and basically said to the the Court of Appeals, okay, now you have our constitutional judgment as to whether that rule has to go or not. So there it is. Now go back with your plaintiffs and your defendants and go back to litigating your case. So it'll find its way back to the court, and the parties will find their way back to that courtroom, and they will re-argue, well, what should the parameters be now based on the Supreme Court ruling? So that means in the weeks or months to come, they'll have to hash through that. Um, So what could happen? What could happen is that a lot of people who don't have a need that they can demonstrate to carry a concealed weapon uh, may apply, and that the number of licenses for concealed carry may surge from where it is now, which is about 3,500 people who have business carry licenses, um, and then a couple thousand more who have licenses to carry as guards, but only on duty and only while they're at work, and they leave that gun behind. So really, the relevant numbers, the 3,500, and what that number might go up to if many people apply to carry guns. So... My takeaway from that is, yes, that means we're going to have more people with concealed carry permits on the streets. But I'll be honest with you. Um, two, I have a few feelings about this decision. And if you want to comment on it or on the solar flares uh, or the sunspot, you can. 1-800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. If you look at someone that's likely to commit a crime, whether we're talking about an armed robbery whether we're talking about a mass shooting, whether we're talking about, uh, you know, any any kind of a gun crime. Very rarely, if ever, is it someone that has a legal concealed carry permit. It's usually someone committing a crime with an illegal gun. Uh, Are there instances that you could show me of people with legal concealed carry weapons that go out to commit a crime? I'm sure you can. But I think that's the exception rather than the rule. So I don't think this is going to lead to the kind of wild, wild west gunfight at the OK Corral culture that uh, Mayor Adams and Governor Hochul were alluding to yesterday. And I think it's especially hypocritical on the part of Governor Hochul, who, when she was in Congress, was one of the few Democrats endorsed by the NRA. She had an A rating from the NRA and she never met uh, a she never met a gun restriction that she didn't want to overturn when she was in Congress. Now that she's got to win a Democratic primary and she's got to, you know, appeal to a more Democratic constituency, it's like she went from being Annie Oakley to Jane Fonda. I really find it really objectionable, quite frankly. That being said, this law has been on the books in New York State 
for 109 years. 109 years. Law has been in place since 1913 uh, requiring people to show proper cause in order to get a license to carry a gun. If that law is going to be changed or removed, that ought to be done by New Yorkers through our democratically elected representatives. Just like how I think states should be free to make their own laws with respect to abortion, this to me is a tremendous attack on states' rights. What works for New York and New Jersey may not work for Texas and Oklahoma. If New York has a right to pass its own laws, who is the Supreme Court through six unelected judges, justices really, to tell our democratically elected official, hey, democratically elected officials, that, that law that's been standing for 108 years, tough. We don't like it. Now it's unconstitutional. We don't care that the democratically elected representatives of the people pass that law. We're striking it down. I hate this. I hate when the Supreme Court steps in and nullifies a law passed by people's democratically elected officials. And it, it really it really kills me. If you want to fix the law, the solution is do it at the ballot box. That's where you do it. Elect people that have a different view. Again, I think the real-world consequence is likely to be fairly insignificant. But I am concerned that this is another example of the court stepping in and trampling on states' rights and trampling on the other branches of government. Um, It should be up to legislatures to legislate. And unfortunately, the court, as of late, has been doing a whole lot of legislating. They have no problem striking down laws on campaign finance restrictions, no problem striking down laws on guns, issue after issue after issue. And here we are, yet again, another attack on states' rights. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. John is in Jersey City. Hello there, John. Hey, good morning. Morning. Uh, so we're, we're talking about the, the gun laws in New York, and I, I, my concern is the application of the law, and the Supreme Court said this, the governor said that, but we have a rap star in Shea Stadium, or the New Met Stadium, rather, They've discovered a weapon. He has no concealed permit. He gets arrested, and it's dismissed like it never happened. So the actual application of the law versus, you know, the Supreme Court saying it's not constitutional, I think the prosecutor and the governor and the mayor, they are more likely to actually apply the law and the discovery of is the guy a good guy or a bad guy? How do we apply the law to that individual? Right. I mean, so I I guess I'm not— I'm not following what what you're saying. I mean, you're saying it's up to the DAs to apply the law? The prosecutor. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah well, that's true, right? I mean, if you're not going to have a DA that enforces what the laws are, as we see with Alvin Bragg in Manhattan, what good do the laws, do the laws make, right? Um, but I, I think the, um, the fact that uh, they are striking down over a century of history and precedent is, in my view, very disturbing. And in my view, it again uh, puts a lot of holes in the whole originalist approach 
to government. So uh, we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. Uh, I'm of the belief that courts should be, whenever possible, deferential to the elected branches of the government. And as Alexander Hamilton said in the Federalist Papers, I think the courts should really only be striking down legislation when there is a when the the law that's passed is at irreconcilable variance with the Constitution, not a law where I see it one way, you see it another. I see it as unconstitutional and you see it as constitutional. No, I I think the only time they should be striking down laws as unconstitutional, if at all, is when no reasonable person can say that it's constitutional. Like, for instance, the Constitution makes clear there should be two senators from each state for a total of 100 senators. If Congress wanted to pass legislation tomorrow saying, you know, in spite of what the Constitution says, we're going to decide there should be 106 senators, not only two from each state, but we're going to make every former president, we're going to make him a senator at large representing the whole country. Okay, Um, that would be clearly unconstitutional because there's very specific provisions for how the Senate works and how many people should be should be in it. That's my take. Um, But, you know, that's why this is America. You don't have to agree. 800-848-WABC. Coming up in a couple of minutes, we're going to talk with Gabriel Shipton. He is Julian Assange's brother and a filmmaker, and uh, he is not at all happy about the fact that Julian Assange may soon be coming to the United States to face prosecution. We'll get into exactly why that's the case. John is in Las Vegas. Hello there, John. Hey, Frank. Um, here in uh, Nevada, you can openly carry a sidearm without a permit. And I'm wondering what the deal is with uh, New York. Uh, can you do that? No. I've never, you know, I used to live in New York. I never no. saw anybody really walking around with open carry. No, you can't. And and that's one of the things that I like about our, our republic, right, in that – Nevada can make the kind of laws that it wants, um, and New York can make the kind of laws that it wants. But no, in New York, you cannot. Uh, we're not an open carry state. Well, I just got to tell you, my pizza guy across the street from me open carries at his uh, pizza joint every single day, and I feel good about it because there's a lot of armed robberies in here, and I feel safer yeah. well, going I, into his place because you can see his side hey, when you go in there. I, I think that's precisely the argument in favor of open carry, John. I think you nailed it. Thank you. 800-848-9222. Ted is in Union, New Jersey. Hello, Ted. Hey, Frank. How are you tonight? Great. All right. So in Florida, you know, you can have a concealed permit and you can have an open carry permit. And, you know, it's a big state. A lot of people are moving there. You know, I don't think it would be a bad idea if we could have something that's similar to Florida. I think maybe that would lessen... Some of the crimes. They make you go to class and take classes on how to handle a gun. Well, I think that's and- what the legislature is probably going to do now. I th- and I think that's a good thing. I think that because it's going to be much easier to get a concealed carry permit, the legislature is going to say you have to um, have certain mandated training. So, look, I don't have any problem with uh, well-trained, uh, well-trained people carrying around legal guns. Uh, those are not the people that are committing crimes. Yeah, as far as the other caller with the open gun at the, the pizzeria, 
like I just think that's in a, you know very if a guy has an open if he has, is carrying a sidearm and the guys are going to rob him they're going to shoot him first I wouldn't you know I would have that concealed to be honest with you yeah I think that's probably what I would do as well but again different strokes for different folks right Nevada does things their way New York does things their way New Jersey does things their own way that's what makes states' rights so great and that is precisely why gun legislation should be worked out in in referendums, you know, voted on by the voters or by the state legislatures, not dictated by six unelected judges. And you see by the inconsistency of some of the decisions that have come out this week that, you know, they can call their philosophy textualism, they could call it originalism or anything else, realism, whatever. The bottom line is the left-wingers are on the court to push a left-wing agenda. The right-wingers are on the court to push a right-wing agenda. Are there exceptions to that? Yes. But for them to mask essentially political decisions in what I consider to be the fallacious color of a legal ideology is, I don't know, it's not, I don't think it's proper. But that's the times that we live in. And uh, there's too many people on the left and too many of the people on the right that don't agree with me. Right. I think if everybody were to come up and say, wait a minute, I may like the results of that decision the Supreme Court made, but it's not for the Supreme Court to make it. Show me where in the in the Constitution, the Supreme Court gets the power, gets the authority to nullify a New York state law that's been standing for 108 years. It's not in there. It's a power they claimed for themselves in an 1803 court decision, 15 years after the Constitution was written. And then it was not a power that they exercised again for another 55 years. So uh, to me, it's, um, it's, it's wacky that we now come to accept the fact that the Supreme Court is, is just fine and dandy nullifying... Supreme Court, uh, you know, legislation Uh, makes no sense to me on abortion, on guns, on campaign finance. No, it should be the voters and our elected officials that get to determine policy unless it's at irreconcilable variance with what the Constitution says. Mike's in New Jersey. Hello, Mike. Hello, Frank. Hey. Well, what you just said about it, it being irrecon- irreconcilable with the Supreme Court, uh, uh, you know, legislation. You there? Yeah, I'm listening to you, Mike. Oh, sorry. Yeah, you, you're saying irreconcilably with the Constitution. What do you do with the Second Amendment? Well, I, well what are the first? What are the first three words in the Second Amendment? What are they? Uh, the first three words are a well-regulated. So. The fact the fact that they speci- those are the first three words in the amendment that it's right, an, yeah. th- that's an indication that there are supposed to be re- there can be regulations and this well, is a there, regulation there are, but there are regulations aren't there yes there's federal laws there's people over eighteen you have to be o- over eighteen I believe don't you well, well it's different state by state in other in some states you could get a gun under eighteen but but I don't. 
there's federal there's federal regulations, aren't there? There's federal regulations there, there, and there's state regulations. As far as I know, there, there are federal regulations, and each state has to match at least the, that's the that's the minimum. Yes, that's true. But there's right. nothing that prohibits a state uh, from adding additional regulations on gun use or anything else. I don't see what they did wrong today. Was it's yeah? I mean, what what I see that what they did wrong is you know they took 108 years of a law that was standing, which people have tried, which uh, you know um, the voters of New York through their elected officials adopted, and they said we don't care what the voters of New York say, we are substituting our judgment for theirs, and they nullified a law. And I think if that law was going to be changed, it should have been changed by our elected officials. I think the solution to well, that it, is the ballot. But wasn't it based upon the fact that they weren't? It wasn't uh, a level playing field. They were giving it. You know, if you were, uh, yeah, that, so the, or you knew somebody, yeah, yeah. Well, yes, that's you, not what that's that, not what the vote is said. You know, right. Well, so that's what Clarence Thomas said in the Fourteenth Amendment justification, and I didn't read all. 500 pages, but I did read a good chunk of them. And the justification that Clarence Thomas uses for the 14th Amendment is, let's just say, pretty creative. It's not an originalist interpretation of the 14th Amendment by uh, by any stretch. But, Mike, I hear you. Look, a lot of people agree with you, and it doesn't matter whether I agree with you. The six, the six members of the Supreme Court that voted this way agree with you. So it doesn't, you're in the majority on this one, at least when it comes to the dominant thinking on the high court these days. It doesn't matter what I think. Hey, uh, we're going to talk with Gabriel Shipton in just a minute. He is the brother of Julian Assange. He is going to join us live from Berlin, talk about what's happening with this extradition of Assange to the United States. We'll get into it straight ahead. WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. tell you, I have been uh, looking at the case of Julian Assange for the last few years now, and just uh, on the one hand, totally disgusted, and on the other hand, in total disbelief. And the decision by the UK Home Secretary to extradite Julian Assange to face trial and a possible life sentence in the United States, to me, is just staggering. And the fact that um, we are giving him uh, a trial for this and criminal charges instead of journalism awards for the work that he's been doing for WikiLeaks is even beyond staggering. But here's the really interesting thing to me. Everybody knows who Julian Assange is. Everybody. You walk down the street. That's one of my favorite things to do. Uh, There was a book that I read that called this Three Breakfast Polling where you just go to breakfast at three different diners and eavesdrop on what people are saying. 
And if you did that over the last week or so, you'd hear quite a bit of conversations about Julian Assange. Everybody knows who he is. Everybody knows what WikiLeaks was. But the people that I talk to, they have almost no understanding of why Julian Assange is being charged to begin with. And the people that love him, the people that hate him, I go up and I'll say, hey, by the way, why is Julian Assange being tried or being prosecuted? And they think, well, I think it has something to do with this. I think it has something to do with uh, hacking the DNC. No, 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 it doesn't. Well, uh, well what is it again? I, I know I don't like it, but well, what is it? So um, I thought we might use this opportunity uh, to help you understand a bit about what's happening with Julian Assange's case and why what the government is doing, both the government of the United States and the government of the U.K., is so egregious and it's so unprecedented, quite frankly. And uh, the man that I'm very honored to have join us is Gabriel Shipton. He is a filmmaker and the uh, brother of Julian Assange, uh, joining us live from Germany this morning. Gabriel, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Thanks for having me, Frank. Uh, so, are you and uh, are you and your brother Julian close? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We. Um... Uh, yes, yes, we are. Yeah. I speak to him every now and again from from the prison. And um, last time I saw him was on his wedding day when he married his wife Stella in the prison on, on the twenty third of uh, March. And and I'll go and see him again next week. Terrific. So it's not a situation where you, you're guessing as to the status of uh, his mindset or his motivations because you guys are estranged and haven't haven't spoken in 15 years. You guys are reasonably close as as any two siblings might be. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Gabriel, can you explain to our audience what exactly Julian is charged with? Well, Frank, I mean, they He's charged with uh, sourcing and publishing uh, classified information. That he's basically charged with what journalists do, what good journalists do um, every day. And what is his legal status now? What is the fact that the UK Home Secretary has approved uh, his extradition to the United States? What does that actually mean? When is he likely to be here? What are the next steps in his prosecution? What's his status right now? Uh, so the UK Home Secretary signed off on his extradition on uh, last Friday. Uh, so uh, at the moment now, that's the highest levels of the UK government. Uh, the highest levels of the UK judiciary have all uh, sided with the US DOJ, saying that um, Julian Trudeau, Julian is an Australian uh, citizen um, charged <laughs> With uh, the, these being charged with espionage uh, by the US DOJ, and he did uh, the, he's charged with espionage by the US DOJ, and he's been extradited from uh, the UK. He has one chance, uh, one more chance to appeal to the UK High Court, uh, and he has another seven days to lodge uh, that appeal application. Uh, but we are, you know, doubtful that that application will go ahead because, um, you know, the Lord Chief Justice has already ruled against Julian in this case. So that's the highest um, judge in England and Wales. So it's uh, very unlikely that the High Court will accept an appeal. 
but there's all this new evidence that um, has come come to light since uh, since Julian's extradition hearing um, at the end of 2020. There's evidence that the CIA was recording Julian's meetings with his lawyers in the embassy uh, and also uh, meetings with his doctors when while he was in the Ecuadorian embassy where he was for seven years. Um, there was also uh, plots uh, to kidnap Julian uh, that emanated from the CIA and went all the way to the White House and also plots to murder Julian. And this was all sort of confirmed. This was all confirmed in a Yahoo News uh, investigation, a 6,000-word uh, word investigation done by three reporters in Washington, D.C. that, uh, that um, had 30 former and current intelligence community sources uh, confirm uh, these uh, spying on Julian's lawyers and these plots uh, to kidnap and murder Julian. So that's new evidence that will be uh, that will be in the appeal application. Also, one of the key witnesses of the U.S. indictment uh, has recanted his witness statement. So, mm. a Icelandic witness uh, has has uh, recanted his statement. So, this is all new evidence that you know should ordinarily would be enough uh, to have this thrown out of court. But um, in Julian's case. Uh, the UK is very, very eager to extradite him to the to the US. So we expect he'll be extradited in in the next three months or so. Uh, we're talking with Gabriel Shipton. He's a film producer and the brother of Julian Assange, who uh, is now likely to be extradited to the United States to face charges under the Espionage Act. Uh, Gabriel, you alluded to the story that came out that. Uh, under a Republican administration, Donald Trump, at the time that Mike Pompeo was the CIA director, was um, Pompeo was involved with some sort of plot to kidnap Assange. Now, um, it's not just Republicans that are hostile to, to Julian. Democratic administrations have been as well. Hillary Clinton said, I think, at the time that she was Secretary of State, can't we just drone him? Now, you have... A Democratic Secretary of State and a Republican Secretary of State, one saying let's drone him, one saying let's kidnap him. Uh, serious question here, totally free of hyperbole. Are you and your family concerned about Julian's life if he were to be extradited to the United States? Yes, well, that's, that's why we're fighting this extradition, uh, you know, as hard as we can, because uh, yeah, there's both, both sides of uh, both sides of politics, um, you know, people at the highest level of, you know, the State Department, also the CIA, have, you know, expressed willingness to, you know, uh, kill Julian. So uh, we know that he won't be safe in a U.S. jail. Uh, that he he, he probably most likely, uh, one way or another, uh, you know, will end up dead if he's extradited to the U.S. So that's why we're fighting so hard. And I'm glad you brought up that quote from. Uh, from Hillary Clinton, um, you know, just it just goes to show that the journalism that uh, Julian did, uh, you know, upset the the people in power. They, it, it upset, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton. It, it upset um, Mike Pompeo. And I think, really, if you if you're not upsetting those in power with your journalism, uh, then um, are you really doing journalism at all? 
And, you know, it's uh, it's a, a great point, uh, it's a great point. And as as our audience knows, the United States doesn't exactly do the best job in keeping high profile prisoners alive. You could just ask Whitey Bulger or uh, Jeffrey Epstein how well we do in that department. Now, uh, has Julian ever been to the United States as far as you're aware? Uh, yes, he has. I think he was there last in 2010 when they released uh, the what's called the collateral murder video, which is a video of an uh, Apache helicopter uh, gunning down two Reuters journalists and then uh, also gunning down the people who come to uh, rescue them. So that, that that was the last time he was in the U.S., you alluded to the uh, the fact that these charges are being brought, at least in part, under the Espionage Act. In the over 100-year history of the Espionage Act, as far as you're aware, has the United States ever used the Espionage Act for a prosecution in this manner? Have they ever gone after a journalist like, like Julian for the kind of thing that he's being charged with? Uh, no, uh, no, they haven't. I mean, usually it's used against uh, leakers. Uh, so that in the past, you know, 50 years, ever since um, the Pentagon Papers, when uh, Daniel Ellsberg was um, Daniel Ellsberg was prosecuted under the Espionage Act, uh, it's been used against leakers. Um, most recently, Daniel Hale, the uh, drone whistleblower. Uh, you know, Chelsea Manning, who who is uh, the source of what. Um, Julian has been charged with uh, publishing. Uh, she was charged under the Espionage Act, but this is the first time it's ever been used against a uh, publisher. So this, you know, this is huge, dangerous uh, precedent uh, that has potentially been set uh, here with with this prosecution. And really, the, it's a sort of um, trying. It's a way to sort of control or turn the First Amendment into a, into a sort of walled garden. You know, you're, you're allowed freedom of speech as long as, as, long as you don't talk about, um, you know, things that we don't want you to talk about, like, you know, uh, national security reporting or, or, or something like that. Interestingly, um, Chelsea Manning, who uh, spent seven years in jail for leaking this information that Julian is charged with publishing, Uh, is now free. She was commuted under Obama uh, in 2016. Um, She she has been, um, you know, living her life uh, normally for the past uh, six years or so. But Julian, the person who published the information, uh, is still still in prison. He's been in prison for three years. Uh, Before that, he was in the Ecuadorian embassy for seven years. Uh, Before that, he was under house arrest. So he's Liberty has been taken away from him uh, for the last 13 years. And some people will say, well, look, Julian did a lot more than just publish information that was sent to him. The Washington Post has done that. The New York Times has done that. Uh, some people will say Julian went so far as to give instructions to Chelsea Manning as to how to access this information. And I think that's one of the counts that he's charged with is sort of uh, conspiracy. I don't know the the exact terminology, but conspiracy to hack into 
a government server. Does that, I know you might not be an objective source on this, but does that make this any worse than just a garden variety media outlet who might publish leaked information rather than help the leaker access that sensitive information? Well, see, uh, Frank, sorry, I'm going to have to correct you on please, that on please. that uh, particular charge. It's a computer intrusion uh, uh, charge, uh, and uh, what what the allegation actually is is that uh, is that Julian uh, would uh, assist uh, Chelsea Manning to crack a password hash that would allow Chelsea Manning to hide her identity. Uh, she already had access to all the information. Uh, beforehand, she had unlimited access to the information. Uh, all, all the allegation is is that uh, Julian assisted her uh, to attempt to crack this password hash. The allegation doesn't even say that they were successful. Uh, so uh, Julian did not assist her to um, to uh, steal or hack any of the information. It was solely the allegation is is solely that he assisted her to hide her identity. Uh, which uh, which journalists do all the time, you know. Who, which journalist wants to expose their source, right? Like they want to uh, take precautions um, to uh, protect their source's identity. So this is another factor in this: is that uh, what what is so concerning about this is is this is something that journalists do all the time. You know, they use encryption. Uh, they use um, you know identify you know like things that can um, hide people's identities. Uh, that to protect their sources. And, and what this is doing is saying, no, that's illegal. You can't actually protect your source. So this this uh, charge is almost like a window dressing uh, of this on this espionage. It allows people to say, oh, Julian is not a journalist. Uh, he's not a publisher. He's a hacker. But it's, it's um, you know, often confused that, that charge uh, because it's like a PR thing uh, to, to, to frame the whole uh, indictment. Uh, where Julian is actually still, even though it's just he's just doing what journalists do uh, every day. Uh, let's remind people what exact uh, what exactly the information was that was exposed uh, by Julian Assange uh, publishing the information that Chelsea Manning sent him. What exactly did we learn in the cables that uh, Chelsea Manning sent to Julian and that WikiLeaks published? We we learn about the uh, war in Afghanistan, you know how the how the war was actually being fought, you know, and and, and the war also the war in Iraq where there was I think ninety thousand uh, civilian deaths that um, you know weren't reported. So we, so we people learn about um, you know the military hiding these uh, types of uh, civilian deaths to try and sort of I guess make the war more palatable to. Uh, people back in the U.S. Uh, we also learned about uh, torture in Guantanamo Bay. Uh, people being tortured there, you know, against the Geneva Convention. Um, we also learned uh, there was one particular cable uh, about the Iraq War. Uh, it was about a group of soldiers who uh, killed a family in a house and then ordered an airstrike on, on that house uh, to. Uh, destroy the evidence. Now, the Iraqi government uh, found that cable, uh, saw that cable on WikiLeaks, uh, saw the reporting on that cable, and 
the Iraqi government refused uh, to renew the status of forces agreement. Uh, so they refused to uh, renew the uh, immunity that uh, U.S. soldiers enjoyed uh, in Iraq. And so the Obama administration had to pull out the troops uh, from Iraq. So, you know, these, these cables had a, uh, these cables and releases uh, had a huge impact, you know, not, not just on people in, in the Middle East, but also on service people who were being sent to these uh, these sort of endless wars, um, you know, that, that the mm. public wasn't really aware of, of what, I, what was actually going on. Uh, James Lewis, a uh, prosecutor that um, <clears throat> that worked for the Department of uh, Justice, he said that uh, by publishing these cables and other information, Julian actually helped put people's lives at risk. Uh, any truth to that in your view? Well, I mean, it, it all, you should also James Lewis has admitted that uh, no one was harmed uh, by the release of these uh, documents. Uh, also, in Chelsea Manning's trial, uh, the military also admitted that there was no, they could not find anybody who was harmed uh, from the release of these documents. So this is another sort of um, mis- misnomer around this case um, that 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 nobody no, can't, there, there was nobody that was actually harmed from these documents. Actually, this document, these release of these documents uh, saved lives. They saved soldiers' lives, soldiers who were being sent uh, to war in Iraq. Uh, that the, the war uh, basically ended because of these releases. If this prosecution goes forward and there is ultimately a guilty verdict, what are the implications for journalism in the future and for free speech in the future in the United States if it can be criminalized in the manner that it is against Julian? Well, I, I mean, it's, it'll just there'll be no national security reporting. Um, you know, the government will be able to um, you know, act with imp- impunity when it comes to um, you know national security. We, people won't just they won't just People will have no idea what's going on because uh, there is no press to be able to keep the government uh, to account. One interesting uh, charge, one of the 17 charges of the Espionage Act is actually for solely for uh, possessing classified information. So this uh, is every single newsroom in, I would imagine, every decent newsroom uh, in the USA would have some piece of classified information uh, in it. So this is sort of like this charge could be turned around and, and used again. Uh, any newsroom that possesses potentially possesses uh, classified information. So um, you ask any journalist that uh, have they ever ha- have they ever possessed a piece of classified information, and most of them will say yes. So it's this incredibly. Um, incredibly dangerous precedent that will, uh, you know, basically silence um, national security uh, national security reporting, not only in the U.S., but also across the globe, because uh, now you can be extradited from uh, basically anywhere. You know, if, 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 say, someone in the U.K. publishes something or uh, someone, uh, you know, in Australia or, or Germany, for instance, uh, they could potentially be extradited to the yes to the U.S. Uh, for that reporting. Uh, something that's also overlooked is that uh, now 
the pre- President Biden and, and Secretary Blinken, they, they uh, uh, are encouraging states like China, states like Russia, um, to be more fair to their journalists, mm. um, to uh, you know have higher press freedom protections. And uh, <laughs> China uh, loves saying, well, who are you to lecture right. us? You know, we'll, yeah, take a look in the mirror. Sure. Yeah, and publisher in prison, so you sort of lose the moral high ground with this with this um, prosecution. Um, you know, the Russian ambassador, when when he was asked uh, about his pres- about his country's press freedom record in in the UK, uh, he brought up Julian Assange, uh, and it's 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 just become a thing now. Every every single authoritarian uh, regime around the world will, will start saying, "Well, who are you to lecture us?" Because uh, you have a journalist and a publisher in prison uh, for reporting on uh, mm. national security. Can you give us an idea of the conditions in which Julian is being held? You indicated that there was a wedding a couple of months ago that took place in prison. A lot of people may think that means the conditions are, are pretty good. How are the conditions that he's facing on a, on a day-to-day basis and, to the best of your knowledge, the conditions that he's dealing with now? Well, I mean, Julian's in a maximum security prison. Uh, he's been there um, three over three years now. Uh, he's not he's not serving a sentence. Uh, he's um, you know an innocent man. He's solely been held uh, in a prison at the request of the US DOJ. Uh, you know, it, it, it's a maximum security prison. It holds. They call it Brit- uh, they call it um, Britain's Guantanamo Bay because it holds. Uh, all, all um, the worst British uh, terrorist people who've been convicted of terrorism. And so you can imagine that it's not a very nice, uh, nice place, mm. uh, particularly for an unconvicted, uh, an unconvicted innocent uh, publisher. So the conditions are not good. Uh, we, but they, are, they are, they won't be as bad as the conditions that Julian will be held in uh, in the US. Uh, these people charged under the Espionage Act are usually um, isolated. Uh, the uh, the government in the US can say, well, we are afraid that Julian might communicate some classified information to other prisoners, uh, that he might communicate classified information to uh, guards or something like that. Uh, so they, they have uh, the ability to keep him in a very, very severe isolation, uh, limited communication, very, very limited communication with the outside world, something that's called SAMS, is special administrative measures, uh, where uh, prisoners are basically kept uh, in total isolation um, so they can't communicate with other people. Uh, there's also another regime called the Communications Management Unit, which is the, uh, how the drone whistleblower, Daniel Hale, that's what he's been held under, which, again, is... Uh, severely limited uh, communication. Uh, all communication is monitored uh, by a, a human FBI agent. So you actually have to book in. If you want to communicate with somebody, you have to actually book in a uh, an FBI agent who uh, listens in live uh, to your conversation. Mm. So these are the sort of um, conditions that Julian faces uh, if, if extradited to the USA. And those are the conditions that a judge at the magistrate level in the UK found would lead him to uh, take his own life, which is why his extradition was uh, rejected at the, at the lower court level. Uh, they found that these oppressive pr- prison conditions uh, 
given Julian's fragile health, would likely lead uh, to his death. That is uh, just awful. Well, I appreciate you taking the time. If people want to continue to follow this case or uh, get involved in the Assange defense, they can go to assangedefense.org. That's assangedefense.org and also WikiLeaks uh, on their Twitter account and uh, in all their other forms has been doing a pretty good job keeping folks up to date with what's happening as well. Uh, That's, of course, wikileaks.org. Gabriel, I'm sorry we're talking under these circumstances, but hopefully we can chat again soon. Please keep us posted. Thanks, Frank. Thank you. You want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to give me a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. kind of bumper music we're playing just join our facebook group just search morano radio fans and haters on facebook and um you can uh make sure that you are well up up to date on everything that we are doing uh, on this show now um a couple of you were curious about the operation day bed which began two days ago in which They sent us a screw which was not functional. So um, my wife has ordered a replacement screw, but we didn't want to wait the three to five days until it arrived. So we did as some of you suggested. We went to the hardware store to see if we could get this screw. Didn't have it. Um, It looks like it's a special type of Ikea screw. So our thinking was that Home Depot probably wouldn't have it either. So... Uh, And I said to my wife, well, you could drive to New Jersey, exit 13A, go to Ikea there and get it. No. So we sought to put the rest of the day bed together without that screw in place and see if we could get it in place so that my sister-in-law and brother-in-law could sleep there tonight. Success. We were able to put the rest of the day bed together. Very frustrating at times. Not nearly as jovial a construction project between my wife and I as yesterday's affair was. Some might have been some screaming, some insults, but we got it done. Until next hour, keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano.
Good morrow, everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. It's that time of the week, ladies and gentlemen, where if you have done something bad this week or you're not living up to your full potential, you're underperforming somehow, you're just lackluster, you might want to turn the radio off. For the rest of you, turn the radio up loud and proud because it is time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents Denunciations. I must begin with our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., According to WalletHub, which compared the operating efficiency of 150 of the largest cities in the nation along 38 quality of services metrics, Washington, D.C. is the worst run city in the nation. Washington, D.C. ranked in the bottom five in several major categories, including the amount of outstanding debt per capita and the high school graduation rate. It is the worst-run city in America. Thank goodness they just reelected their mayor. Am I right? Uh, I mean, don't get me wrong. I think the jabronis that, uh, that were running against her would not have exactly been profiles in competence. I want to denounce the Stephen Colbert staffers that were arrested on Capitol Hill as they tried to film a segment featuring Triumph the Insult Comic Dog. Uh, focused on, The segment was focused on the January 6th committee hearings. So, look, if it's wrong to trespass at the Capitol, it's wrong to trespass. It's wrong to trespass because you're upset about the results of the election. It's wrong to trespass if you want to get the results of that election overturned. It's wrong to trespass on the nation's capital if you're doing it for a comedic television segment. And uh, I am not only denouncing those that were arrested for trespassing, but I am uh, denouncing the hypocrisy of those that are acting as if the Rioters that were arrested on January 6th deserve to be locked up with the key thrown away. And yet they're acting like what what the Colbert staffers did was no big deal. So it's a big if it's a big deal to trespass on the nation's capital, it's a big deal when anybody does it, no matter the intent. I want to denounce e-cigs and vaping. A new study from Intermountain Healthcare shows many people who vape or use e-cigarettes can experience significant, significant chronic issues that can persist up to a year or more. This is a study published in the Annals of the American um, Thoracic Society, and it found that patients who suffered from e-cigarette or vaping-associated lung injury had a high risk of developing depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disability, respiratory disability one year after their injury even 12 even at 12 months after one of these diagnoses of a a, a vape related condition the majority of the patients they looked at still had serious residual side effects now if you want to use vaping as a means of quitting cigarette smoking i think that's probably a wise move but if you're if you want to vape and you think, oh, because it's water vapor, it's no big deal, and you can, you know, vape with abandon? No. There are very serious health ramifications here. 
I'm not talking about from a regulatory perspective or anything like that. I'm just saying that um, it's not good for you. I would strongly discourage it. I want to denounce Jerry Otero. (sighs) This guy is an embarrassment to all Staten Islanders and to all baseball coaches. This is a youth baseball coach for a travel team based in Staten Island, the New York Prospects. And I I can't even believe this. He has been charged with attacking an elderly umpire during a game in New Jersey, leaving the man with a broken jaw and a concussion. So this fellow, Jerry Otero, who's only 40 years old, punched this 72-year-old umpire after being ejected for using foul language during a 13-and-under tournament game hosted by the U.S. Amateur Baseball League. This fellow has been permanently banned by the U.S. Amateur Baseball League. He's been charged with third-degree aggravated assault, fourth-degree assault at a youth sports event. He was taken into custody at the Somerset County Jail. This is crazy. He was ejected from the game by the umpire for aggressively arguing a call while shouting expletives. So shame on him for that. He then proceeded to punch the umpire in the face, fracturing his jaw in two places and giving him a concussion. And first of all, all of what I just said, I think, is horrible and sufficient grounds for a denunciation. But to me, the worst part about this is all of this, the foul language, the breaking the guy's jaw, the giving the 72-year-old man a concussion, all this was done in front of both teams of 13-year-old kids, in front of their families watching the game. I mean, what kind of example is this guy setting for his players and for just 13-year-olds in general? When you're around children, you should try to put your best foot forward, even if that means, you know, trying to stifle some of your emotions. This is nuts. I can't think of a guy more worthy of a denunciation. Oh, maybe I can. Carmen Soto, 77 years old, a grifting grandmother from the Bronx who bilked the federal government out of more than $650,000 and then blew most of it at a casino. (laughs) Carmen Soto, I mean... You got to give her credit for long term thinking. She had apparently been plotting this scheme since 1960. 1960. Imagine if she, if she would have just decided to save money beginning in 1960, throw it in a, a CD or a mutual fund. Um, she applied for two phony Social Security cards in 1960. And then she began collecting benefits off the bogus government IDs around 1994. And so she was finally busted this year after a trip to the DMV. You see, it's the DMV that gets you every time. She was probably trying to use one of those kiosks that I tried to use the other day. That's probably what it was. So she was finally busted after a trip to the DMV 
where facial recognition technology blew the lid off of her illicit venture. So she had a third social she had a third social security card in her real name and she had applied for government benefits using the other two IDs with the aliases Gloria Sanchez and Carmen Maldonado in what the DA's office in the Bronx is calling a carefully orchestrated scheme to build the system. So over nearly three decades of collecting money from Social Security and the city's Human Resources Administration, Soto conned well over half a million dollars. Each of Soto's identities had a bank account, driver's licenses or non-driver ID, a passport, and a P.O. box. But the wealth of supporting documents was her undoing. She was nabbed while trying to renew a driver's license, and the DMV's facial recognition technology matched her face with three separate IDs. So you got to be careful, folks. Um, so she's pled guilty, and she's been she's sentenced to five years probation. She's also on the hook for money, for all the money that she stole, good, but most of which she has already lost gambling. So there you have it. Carmen Soto. I mentioned this the day before and the day before, but I will mention it one more time. I must announce the Ukraine Ministry of Justice because they have banned the Opposition Platform for Life Party, OPFL, Ukraine's largest pro-Russian political party from operating within the country's territory. This decision announced on the uh, the appeals court's Facebook page indicated that all of the party's assets and property within Ukraine would immediately be forfeited and given to the state. I want you to just understand what Ukraine is doing here. Okay? They have banned one of the leading opposition political parties, seized all their assets, seized all their money, and taken it for the government. Does that sound like a democracy to you? Ukraine... Ministry of Justice, I do denounce you. And then I must once again, I try not to overdo it with denouncing the mayor and the governor, whoever the mayor and the governor happen to be. Because, look, the mayor and the governor make a lot of decisions every day. Chances are there's one thing every day that one of them does that is worthy of a denunciation. But I'm afraid the behavior we have seen this week from the mayor of New York City, Eric Adams, is so egregious and so inappropriate that it calls for a denunciation. Mayor Eric Adams, last year when he was a candidate, denied, flat-out denied, that he co-owned a Brooklyn co-op with a friend. He claimed that he had gifted his shares to her more than 10 years ago. Now, honestly, I mean, look, you can forget when the last time you had your car inspected was. You could forget the last time you had an oil change. You could forget the last time you had a physical. You could forget the last time that you had eggs for breakfast. Will you? Can you really forget whether or not you gifted an apartment to someone? So, Mayor Adams 
lied. He did not disclose the existence of the one-bedroom apartment on Prospect Place or his 50% share in it in the financial disclosure forms that he filed as Brooklyn Borough President from 2016 through 2020. He, uh, He didn't disclose it. And then last fall, the day before the general election, Adams changed his story completely. Completely changed it. And he amended his disclosure forms for all those years to admit he continued to hold half the shares in the co-op that he owned with a, quote, good friend, Sylvia Cohen. He, By the way, when he amended that the day before the election, he didn't publicly disclose that he was making the change at the time. The change in Adams' narrative of this emerged two days ago as the city's Conflict of Interest Board released financial disclosure form for city elected officials covering the year 2021. Bottom line is Adams did everything he could to lie about this co-op and his ownership in this. So on Wednesday, Adams declined to directly respond to multiple questions from the press about his ownership of the co-op. But his spokesperson, Fabian Levy, repeated past statements that the ownership was transferred to Cohen years ago. We now know that's not true. However, Levy admitted the ownership is not yet fully transferred, and the city, which is a great news source here, it's a nonprofit news source, confirmed that Adams continues to own a 50% share of the apartment. Now, you might be thinking, what's the excuse? How can they have an excuse for making such an egregious error, like falsely filing financial disclosure forms for almost a decade, and then, shh, Changing it the day before the election while not telling anyone. Well, (laughs) once again, the Adams team is claiming that the failure to file the proper documentation was due to the Adams, uh, to, to Adams' prior accountant. Once he got a new accountant, the mayor realized all the proper paperwork had not been filled out in the past and that a new deed had not been filed by the other property owner. Adams' prior accountant was homeless. So Eric Adams, the guy that's now in charge of city government, chose, no one forced him, chose to pick a homeless accountant. And trust this guy with his finances and multiple properties that he was owning. And when this guy screws up, Eric Adams and his team, their excuses, shoulder shoulder shrug, and, oh, sorry, it wasn't us. It was the homeless accountant we hired. I mean, give me a break. How stupid are New Yorkers? This is crazy. We are accepting this as an explanation? We ha- He had a homeless accountant? So that's why he couldn't file proper paperwork? This is crazy. Eric Adams and his team, whether they be homeless or home full, I do denounce you. I must also denounce the vandals who vandalized Congressman, uh, Michigan Congressman Tim Wahlberg's campaign office Uh, This is terrible. All this vandalism Wednesday morning and a sign near the building's entrance at his campaign office in Michigan was defaced with pink spray paint and two windows on the front side of the building were smashed. And uh, apparently this was um, 
done by a group. It was the graffiti was sprawled Jane's Revenge. And the term Jane's Revenge has been linked to threats made in the name of defending abortion rights. Look, if you're for abortion rights, then great. Protest peacefully. But for you to vandalize a congressman's office, that's pretty low rent. And you're a total low life, to be honest. And I do denounce you. Penultimately, I I must denounce the Harry E. Reid Insurance Agency in Maine. I hate to do this because I'm planning to visit Maine. I've heard nothing but great things about it. And they have ranked choice voting there now, which I like. And I'm going to visit Maine. But I'll tell you, this rank, this uh, this insurance agency in Maine, they're a real piece of work here. So this is in Millinocket, Maine. The insurance agency put up a sign on Monday that read the following. Juneteenth, it's whatever. We're closed. Enjoy your fried chicken and collard greens, the the sign stated in large font, taped to the front of the insurance agency. Now, this is a totally racist sign. This plays on stereotypes of what black people eat on a holiday that's meant to celebrate the liberation of slaves. Now, it's funny, whenever I'm saying we don't need reparations, we don't need special holidays promoting this racial group, we don't need this, we don't need that, then these idiots at the Harry Reid Insurance Agency and their ilk go out and prove that there really are pretty brazen racists still out there. So, Harry E. Reid Insurance Agency, I do denounce you. And finally, I must denounce vociferously... The person or persons, well, it's one person, they think, who shot at a police car yesterday and hurt an NYPD detective in the process. Now, police say that two officers were sitting in a marked car when a bullet pierced through the window. Investigators are still trying to determine whether the officer was hit by the bullet or glass from the shattered window. But, no doubt about it, 4.30 in the afternoon, someone on foot opened fire at this police car. This is crazy. So I hope they catch whoever's responsible and get that person and the gun off the street. I will bet you dollars to donuts that whoever they find that shot at this police car will not have been someone with a legal concealed carry permit. Anybody want to take that bet? Uh, All right. Hey, uh, so as I said yesterday uh, when I was talking to uh, Joseph in the Bronx, a.k.a. Joseph in Park Chester, being a police officer is one of the few jobs where you literally have people wanting to kill you or at least injure you because of who you are and because of the job that you do. So I tend to give a lot of leeway to the cops. I do. However, there are some bad cops out there. And if you find a police officer that does something criminal, as far as I'm concerned, throw the book at them. And Suffolk County had one of these cops who was a pretty bad guy. Not only was he one of these cops, 
he was the top cop in Suffolk County. Jimmy Burke and Gus Garcia Roberts has written a terrific new book all about Jimmy Burke. It's called Jimmy the King, Murder, Vice, and the Reign of a Dirty Cop. We'll talk about how a criminal became the top cop in Suffolk County. Straight ahead. WABC. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. Midnight, I'm Frank Moreno at Sublime singing about summertime. If you ever want to know the music we're playing, just join our Facebook group. Go to Facebook.com slash groups slash Radio Morano, or just search on Facebook Morano Radio Fans and Haters. So we have spent a lot of time over the last uh, year and a half or so exploring the case of the Long Island serial killer. And it's a case uh, that is shrouded in mystery. There's a lot of different theories about what happened. But whatever you think may have happened with these Gilgo Beach murders, I don't think there's anybody that thinks that the job that the Suffolk County Police Department did in investigating this case was a stellar one. And there are so many theories. There are so many um, allegations. There are so many questions about the Suffolk County police chief at the time, Jimmy Burke. Now, Jimmy Burke was the top cop in Suffolk County, and he went on to become a convicted felon himself in a case that had nothing to do, as far as we know, with the Long Island serial killer. A guy that uh, knows a great deal about Jimmy Burke, his rise and his fall, is the author of a terrific new book. Uh, The book's called Jimmy the King, Murder, Vice, and the Reign of a Dirty Cop. He's a longtime investigative reporter. He's worked with a number of outlets, including the Washington Post, and uh, he's just done an incredible job with this book, Jimmy the King. Very pleased to welcome Gus Garcia Roberts. Gus, thanks so much for joining me so early in the morning. Thank you, Frank, for having me on. All right, so... Let's assume people know nothing about Jimmy Burke. They haven't heard my previous radio segments on this, and they haven't read your book on it. Give us the Reader's Digest version. Who is or who was Jimmy Burke? Um, so he was the chief of department of the, of the Suffolk County uh, Police Department, one of the largest departments in the, in the country. Uh, and uh, the way that he got his start was he was – a witness in a notorious homicide case uh, back in 1979 in which a 13-year-old boy was was murdered in Smithtown, New York. 
and through you know somewhat uh dubious testimony he he cemented the convictions of of four of his uh buddies in Smithtown and the prosecutor in that case Tom Spoda went on to become DA and and uh and helped Burke get a job as a police officer and then rise up through the ranks um and Burke became uh, notorious and, and something of a, of a sort of national laughing stock in 2012, um, or, or starting in 2012, uh, because he beat a heroin addict who had broken into his unmarked police truck and stolen a duffel bag that had sex toys and other embarrassing items and then pornography, and uh, and then spent years. Um, sort of orchestrating a high-level cover-up, um, trying to keep the feds off his trail, which ultimately uh, failed, and he um, pleaded guilty and, and went to prison. And, and his and his longtime mentor Tom Spoda was then convicted at trial and also went to prison for helping him cover up that beating. What sparked your interest in writing about Jimmy Burke? Um, the, the idea that there were sort of two really fascinating bookends for the guy, you know, one was, uh, one was his fall, which was so spectacular and sort of embarrassing and telling, you know, which was, um, him, uh, beating up this, this, this heroin addict who had broken into his car and found embarrassing stuff and then spending years covering it up. And then the, and then the murder that, that sort of marked the beginning of his rise. And the testimony in that case, um, and the idea that 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 he had sort of his implosion had brought down his mentor Spoda, all of that sort of reminded me kind of of, of the Departed, uh, <laughs> and I thought that like you know, uh, if you got deeper into this guy's um, story, you could probably understand a lot about sort of the failures of of of. Uh, modern policing and in some circumstances and sort of what leads a guy who has no qualification, uh, what allows him to, to rise to the top of a major police department and uh, botch things so badly. And, and what are the sort of levers of complicity that allow that? And so, you know, he was kind of that, that ideal case study. I thought that, that 1979, case that you that you mentioned having to do with the slaying of a 13 year old boy that sort of set him on his uh, career trajectory with the Suffolk County Police Department. You alluded to maybe some questions about Burke's testimony that led to the conviction in that case. What, what exactly do we know about the veracity of Burke's testimony in that case? Yeah, so so the case was was a very sensational one um in that this was sort of like the birth of the of the uh, suburbs of 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 New York um and uh the, you know the the one of the primary reasons people were leaving for for Suffolk County and Nassau County was to feel more safe and and here we had a 13-year-old boy John Pius who was found behind a schoolyard with six rocks stuffed down his throat and beaten to death and it was um, you know, a huge deal, uh, and and there was a um, and it fell on Tom Spoda, the prosecutor, to solve it. Um, and so 
uh, Burke emerged as kind of, he was like this wayward uh, teenager at the time. He hung out with a crew of local delinquents. Um, and his testimony was that uh, two of the boys had implicated themselves um, by pseudo confessions of the murder. Uh, and eventually, you know, as the sort of years dragged on in these cases, because because there was uh, retrials and, and it became a, a decades-long saga, um, the, initially the strongest piece of evidence against the boys was a, was a taped confession that one of them made, you know, in the back of a detective's car uh, after being denied access to a lawyer and with his parents being misled as to where he was. Um, eventually, after that confession was was deemed to be coerced, really the strongest evidence was was what Jimmy Burke said. And so, you know, I studied the transcripts of his testimony in those various cases, and he sort of transposes his testimony based on, you know, for example, what defendant he is testifying against. Uh, in one case, you know, you might say one of his friends said. Uh, implicated himself, you know, in a conversation at a certain, you know, schoolyard in Smithtown. And then uh, in another trial, he might say that another friend said the exact same thing in the same schoolyard at, a, at the same time. Uh, and so when you read that stuff, it, it, it sort of, um, and, and the, you know, what he said that the kids said, you know, um, was inconsistent with his prior testimony and it was also inconsistent with the, with the facts of the case um and the facts of the the crime scene and so when you read that it's really difficult to not sort of arrive at the conclusion that that he is basically just saying you know what he has been told is what the prosecutor needs to get a conviction in that specific case because it just does not have the the, the ring of truth and and you know, I'm happy to get more into detail. No, no, I, I think uh, I think we kind of yeah. I, I think we get the uh, the sense that uh, his trouble with the truth uh, for the sake of getting the result that uh, that you want was uh, was set pretty early on. We're talking with Gus Garcia Roberts about uh, Jimmy Burke. Check out his new book, Jimmy the King, Murder, Vice and the Reign of a Dirty Cop. You alluded to the uh, the incident with him. Uh, beating up someone, a heroin addict that uh, got into his car and stole his bag of uh, of sex toys and pornography, was that the that was the crime that ultimately did him in? That was it. That was his first conviction as a, um, and that was what brought him down as Suffolk County Police Chief. Yeah, it's funny. He was sort of untouchable, you know, and 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 you know, more powerful than the county executive. He was this very fearsome figure, along with. Tom Spoda, um, and he had a lot of enemies through the years and people that tried to stop his rise, you know, other cops who tried to raise internal warnings and, and, and were essentially ignored, and he, and, he, and he crushed his enemies. And, and the person that brings him down is, is Christopher Loeb, um, you know, a 26-year-old with a, with a decade-long heroin addiction whose primary occupation was jiggling the doors of cars in his native Smithtown. And you know, selling what he got out of those cars uh, illegally on, on Craigslist, um, and so that uh, that 
Burke uh, going to the to the precinct um, where Loeb was held the next morning and beating him, uh, and 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 there being a large number of police witnesses, uh, and then sort of you know using his control over the department to to cover it up for years is the is the crime that ultimately brought him down. And there was, though, credible evidence of a great deal of other misconduct while he was in office, though, right? Uh, yes. You know, this was somebody who was who was essentially just out of out of control. Um, and uh, so, you know, w- one of the things that, that popped up uh, and, and it was um, swept under the rug for years, you know, mostly thanks to at the time New York's laws. Uh, making internal affairs records secret was that he had a, a years-long relationship with a sex worker named Loretta Rickenbacker um, when he was a young beat cop, uh, and uh, um, and and there were allegations in those in in, in those records that you know he had. Um, for one, had sex on duty with her, and also that he had, you know, used uh, drugs with her, and and drug use was um, something that that sort of followed Burke, in which he, in which he, you know, at points admitted uh, followed Burke throughout his career, and including, you know, hard drugs like like smoking crack cocaine. You mentioned his early relationship with uh, Thomas Spoda, the DA, obviously, I'm sure that's something that can not only help you get hired as a police officer, but I'm sure it's something that helps you work your way up the hierarchy of the police department. But police chief, as you point out, in one of the biggest counties, uh, uh, police departments in the whole country, that's a coveted job. It's a job that I would think a lot of people want. How um, How does someone like Jimmy Burke, who essentially it sounds like was committing crimes throughout his entire tenure as a Suffolk County cop. How does someone like that get appointed to be police chief to begin with? He became almost like a politician more than a cop. And so, you know, his, his, the, the big leapfrog that, that allowed him to uh, become a police chief was, was his role in the kind of secretive ouster of, of, of then County Executive Steve Levy, uh, you know. Um, Burke worked in Spoda's DA's office, and, and they had a cagey investigation of Levy in which they never actually disclosed the findings. But whatever it was, it, it uh, was, was uh, damaging enough that Levy agreed to not seek office, and that, um, that allowed uh, – that paved the way for, for the next county executive, Steve Ballone. Um, and Ballone was, you know, in the thrall of Jimmy Burke uh, and and uh, made a exception to the way things are typically done and insisted that instead of naming a commissioner who would then, you know, lead a search for a, or for a police chief, um, he wanted Jimmy Burke to be police chief and there would be a commissioner who would basically be a figurehead uh, by design um, in the department. And so, you know, from the beginning, Ballone was sort of um, dead set on Jimmy Burke leading the department. And then as the red flags became uh, harder to ignore that Burke was 
you know, unqualified and that he was also sort of beset by scandal. Um, uh, Ballone for, covered for him basically as, you know, long as physically possible. And so, so essentially it was kind of a study in, in what happens when a charismatic, uh, if completely unqualified uh, cop kind of learns the, the ropes of a highly politicized uh policing system mm. and 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 uses that to to hoist himself to the top uh chug with gus garcia roberts his new book is jimmy the king uh, murder vice and the reign of a dirty cop so it sounds like he was uh, always kind of a bad guy in terms of his conduct in terms of playing by his own rules uh, in my experience a lot most people i'll say are multifaceted. There are good aspects to them, not so good aspects to them. You alluded to uh, him being charming and charismatic. What about as a law enforcement person, even in spite of the fact that he was breaking the law himself, are there any key law enforcement victories that you might be able to point to as saying, yeah, sure, he was corrupt, but at least he did blank? Any any positives on the on the ledger for Jimmy Burke as police chief in Suffolk? Um, you know, I, I'll say this. In, in his police career, he was sort of known for being a very hard-charging cop. Uh, and, um, you know, he, he uh, you know, he was the sort of guy who, who racked up a lot of arrests. Um, he was, you know, he was not a loafer. Uh, and, um, you know, as, as police chief, honestly, I, you know, I would love to, I would love to say that there was this, this big redeeming victory. Problem is, within a year of him becoming police chief, he had beaten Chris Loeb, and then from, you know, for the next uh, mm. few years while he was clinging to office, he was literally engaged in a federal criminal conspiracy, right. and so. You know, he wasn't really doing his job Got as it. much as he was attempting to stay out of federal prison. Um, Long Island serial killer Gilgo Beach killings. A lot of rumors surround uh, Jimmy Burke's role in that whole thing. Uh, what do we know about what role he might have played in the Gilgo Beach killings? And what does evidence suggest his role might have been in the Gilgo Beach killings? And so, you know, one of the reasons why he has been, you know, linked as a suspect by the sort of general public is the emergence of the news that 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 he and Spoda kept the FBI from doing their um, their their profile of of potential of, of the of the serial killer or killers. Uh, in that area, which is sort of a, a typical step. Almost every unsolved serial killing in America gets uh, has one of these profiles done by the FBI. They're an extremely important step. Uh, and uh, Spoda and Burke blocked the FBI, um, and it was one of multiple ways in which they sort of appeared to be interfering to not allow the feds uh, access to, to, to this uh, killing investigation. Um, and so, you know, you couple that with the idea that we know Burke had this documented history with sex workers in his personal life, um, clearly a proclivity for violence, and, you know, perhaps the power to sort of successfully cover up um, this case, I think, is, you know, our 
among the things that have sort of contributed to him being that 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 suspect in the public's eye. You know, what what I sort of what I would would counterbalance that with is that there's you know no available evidence that shows that he has any involvement at all. And in fact, if you speak to you know law enforcement agents who you know have no reason to carry water for Burke who who have knowledge of the case, typically they they sort of dismiss out of hand the idea that 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 Burke had any involvement in it. However, you know it's impossible to ignore. Um, you know, how badly Suffolk County PD mm. botched the case. And, uh, and, 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 you know, what, and one example of that is when Burke became chief, uh, he had the chief of detectives, the guy who oversaw the, the, the serial killing investigation, um, ousted unceremoniously, which isn't extremely odd, but I, I think what was odd was that there was no briefing from that chief of detective on uh, the facts of the of the case. And so essentially, you know, that was two years after the, the, the bodies were discovered. They, they essentially started from, from zero from that point forward. Um, and so I think there's two ways you can look at that. One is, you know, that this is some sort of a concerted cover-up. Uh, or that you can look at it as Jimmy Burke was obsessed with with um, credit. He did not want the feds involved mm. in, in this and in, in this and other major investigations, uh, and and that he had a history of sort of putting his own interests above those of, of Suffolk County residents, and it's something he had also done uh, in regards to the investigation of the uh, street gang MS13, which he also sort of made very uh, um, questionable moves, which allowed that gang to fester in, in Long Island. Um, and and so, you know, I don't have the answer as to which of those it was, uh, willfulness or incompetence, but I, you know, I suppose uh, the, the result is, is, is the same and it's, and it's right. sad and, it, and it's that this, you know, the case was kind of did not have a hope to be solved because of him. It sounds like, though, you are not one of the people that necessarily believes that he was the killer or one of the killers. No, I don't. I, you know, I haven't seen I'm, I'm not here to rule that out 100 percent, of course, but I haven't seen anything that sort of indicates that except for just sort of popular opinion. And and uh, and, you know, the fact that he's kind of become the, you know, the go to boogeyman of Suffolk County. Mm. Uh, uh, his name's Jimmy Burke. There was also a very famous Lucchese crime family gangster uh, by the name of James Burke, Jimmy the Gent. He's the basis for the Robert De Niro character in uh, Goodfellas, Jimmy the Gent Conway. I had heard uh, one rumor that uh, James Burke, the gangster, Jimmy the Gent, is actually the the biological father of Jimmy Burke, the police chief. Is there any truth to that? Uh, I mean, it's some fun stuff. So, so Jimmy the Burke, the cop, uh, grew up in Ozone Park. You know, and he, and he went to school, in a, you know, a Catholic school, basically around the corner from the uh, from the Bergen uh, Hunt and Fish Club, where where uh, the Gambino crime family, you know, plotted the heist that was, you know, in Goodfellas. Um, so he was 
he he was uh, the you know the circum there's some circumstantial evidence that fuels that I think the fact that he grew up in the same area. Um, I spoke to Jimmy the Gents, uh, you know, known biological son, and he said, you know, I've heard that, uh, but he said, as far as I know, there's you know there's absolutely no truth to it, and and you know just studying um, as much as I could of of, of uh, Police Chief James Burke's, um, you know, um, uh, genealogical history and his family history, my, uh, you know, I sort of, I have no reason to believe that mm-hmm. that's true, unfortunately, because of, because of, because it's pretty fun. It, it is fun, but you know, that's what's so great about your book is you're able to tell a very <laughs> compelling story in really in a way that reads like a novel. And yet, uh, yeah. most of what's in here not not most all of what's in here is based on evidence and based on true. That's why I wanted to uh, ask that question. Hey, where is Jimmy Burke, Police Chief Jimmy Burke? Today is he out of prison these days? And if he is, where is he? Yes, he's out. Um, he, I believe, he still lives in the Smithtown area, and he still pulls in about one hundred forty-five thousand dollars in, in uh, taxpayer-funded police pension every year. Oh, thank goodness! Thank goodness! Uh, hey, um, I know you've spent a lot of time not only as an investigative reporter but uh, covering sports. Uh, in Covering this case, did you see any similarities to the way in which you would cover cops and the way in which you would cover athletes? Well, both, you know, cops and athletes have these kind of close cultures uh, where, um, you know, for the most part, they they abide by a code of silence as far as what their colleagues are doing. Uh, and it's you know it's very rare that 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 code of silence is is broken in any significant way, um, and so that was a pretty uh, that you know th- that struck me as similar in trying to report this is is essentially trying to get past that 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 code of silence in, in both cultures is is pretty difficult and and you know really what 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 investigating. Uh, sports and, you know, professional sports leagues and also, you know, a place like Suffolk County DA's office and, and the PD is you're you know, you're investigating um, very powerful institutions mm. that, that are very good at, at sort of um, at sort of spinning the facts their way. And, and so that was also similar. Did you seek to interview uh, either Jimmy Burke for your book or Tom Spoda, maybe even Steve Ballone, the county executive that appointed Jimmy Burke? I did. So um, Burke, you know, denied my my request to interview him, which I made on multiple occasions through his attorney. Uh, Spoda, uh, you know, I, I definitely made clear to his lawyer that I wanted to interview him. Both of them, I sent them sort of detailed um, emails that contained what would, you know, some of the revelations about them that would be in the book. And, and I never got a response from Spoda. Um, and then Ballone, um, you know, at one point uh, they seemed amenable. And then I think they sort of learned. Um, I mean, I know they learned because they, they basically asked me, you know, can you, can you provide us some of what you want to ask, you know, county executive. And so I provided it. And I think that they felt that it was not sort of, you know, positive for the county executive. And and that's not because I was spinning the facts. 
uh, I think that I was basically just, you know, going through the trajectory of Jimmy Burke as it related to Steve Malone. And it, it's hard to avoid uh, the fact that, that, that Malone kind of continually uh, gave Burke a pass and, and covered for him and deflected for him. Um, and so, you know, in, in the end, they they declined to to have Malone be interviewed for the book, which I think was a pretty glaring omission. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, as far as uh, as far as kind of what the you know, it feels like the the taxpayers of Suffolk County probably demand something of a of an explanation, but but he didn't want to give it in my book. It, um, it, it you know one of the things that's pretty clear here in reading in your book is that not only is Jimmy Burke a bad guy, but the whole culture in the Suffolk County Police Department at the time that he was there was pretty corrupt. At the As best you can tell, is the Suffolk County Police Department still corrupt? Does this culture of corruption still exist within the department? Um, so as, uh, you know, as, as the reporting in my book shows, the, you know, this goes back to the, 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 at least the 70s or 80s, when homicide detectives were, you know, regularly accused credibly of of, of um, torturing or beating confessions out of homicide suspects, and I think you saw a flavor of that in the John Pius case that led to to James Burke's rise. Um, and you know, there have been major reckonings in Suffolk County. There was a uh, a major um, state investigation. Uh, which was a really big black mark for Suffolk County. And I think, you know, at that time, there was probably speculation that, you know, this is finally going to clean this place up. Uh, and then it just didn't happen, you know. And a lot of a lot of the characters who investigated in the first, in that, in that uh, state investigation, um, stayed in power or, or continued to rise. One of them was, mm. was Tom Spoda. Uh, and so, you know, there's been these moments where where it looks like like the like Suffolk County might be cleaned up. I think it would be naive to sort of assume that that's the case because, you know, I think it's pretty ingrained in the culture out there. This is a place that is ruled by cops and prosecutors yeah. who have who have had impunity for decades. Um, you know, so but but I think, you know, clearly getting a guy like Jimmy Burke out uh, which was something that was sort of forced on the on the county honchos by the feds. This was sure. not like an internal uh, an internal uh, refutation of him. This was something that was forced on them by the feds. You know, getting him out and and sort of having it laid bare um, in for one in the federal case, federal trial of Tom Spoda, uh, sort of how toxic his reign was. Yeah. You know, maybe that will be a, a, a cleansing for the place. I think it remains to be seen. All right. We're going to have to end it there. It's a terrific book. Gus Garcia Roberts. The book is called Jimmy the King, Murder, Vice, and the Reign of a Dirty Cop. Uh, Gus, best of luck with the book. I hope we can talk again. I want to, too. Thanks a lot, Frank. Thank, Thank you. Sure. If you want to comment, 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. We'll continue with your calls straight ahead. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC.
Kentucky Buckingham, Holiday Road. It looks like um, it looks like summer is here, and uh, school's wrapped up for a whole lot of folks, and a lot of people are going to be taking a lot more of those road trips and probably listening to songs like this one. Uh, so I gave the daybed update. Let me give the cat update. Uh, for if you haven't been following the trials and tribulations of our cat Beth Sheba. She keeps losing weight, and uh, our, do- her, our veterinarian told my wife the other day that, uh, that she thinks it's either irritable bowel syndrome or lymphoma, and they ruled out just about everything else. And so yesterday was the day that, uh, that she went for her biopsy, and uh, they had to do a little surgery by removing a small section of her intestine. And uh, she, she was very well behaved at the vet. But she's not allowed to physically exert herself. They don't even want to go up and downstairs. So for the time being, and she couldn't even eat today. So she can't eat until a couple hours from now. So she's in the my wife's bedroom for at least a couple of days. So we'll see what happens. Your influence counts, so use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Uh, thank you for listening to our program. This is our last program of the week. And then uh, I will be back on Monday morning at 1 a.m. i got some big things planned for Monday's show. We'll see. I may let you in on some of the stuff that uh, that's going to be happening Monday, or I may just save that for special announcements over the weekend and on the radio Monday. So we'll see. But, uh, by the way, I was just saying on the cat front, so our cat Bathsheba is not able to use the stairs for at least a couple of days. She wasn't even able, able to eat yesterday. So, uh, and and she didn't really want to be stuck in the bedroom with my wife, but my wife picked her up around 7 p.m. She wasn't able to feed her. She took her right up to the bedroom and kept her in the bed with bedroom with her. And all she wanted to do was go outside. And this is a cat that loves going out and hanging out in the backyard and stuff of that, of that nature. And it, um, you know, so she was not having a good day yesterday. And this is my wife's favorite cat. So she's, she was not having a good day yesterday. But we'll see what happens. They say we should have the results in the biopsy of the biopsy in about a week. Now, whether it's a biopsy, whether it's a, uh, whether it's lymphoma or whether it's irritable bowel syndrome, they need to take steroids irregardless. And I realize I said irregardless. I like to say irregardless from time to time. Hold your calls. But um, if it's lymphoma, obviously, there's a much broader array of treatment, including chemotherapy. So hopefully it's just irritable bowel syndrome. We'll see in about a week when we get the results of the the biopsy back. Now, um, today here at the radio station, it is Gay Pride Day. So we have uh, rainbow flags everywhere. 
we have uh, pins, and I grabbed a couple of pins, and they're going to be special LGBTQ plus guests on just about all the shows, starting with the uh, Bernie and Sid show. And uh, by the way, I am very pro-gay rights. I was for gay rights before it was fashionable. I was for gay marriage before Hillary Clinton was. I was for gay marriage before Barack Obama was. I have always been a big supporter of gay rights. I think gay gay people should have all the rights that everybody else has. I think gay folks should be able to march in parades with no problem. God bless you. I have many friends that are gay, and uh, I think it's a, a, a great thing. However, um, I've never really kind of gotten the idea behind gay pride parades and gay pride days. Um, and I recognize that historically in this country and around the world, gay people have been discriminated against, you know, when it comes to hiring, when it comes to housing, when it comes to the criminal justice system. You know, if you study the case of the Kitty of Kitty Genovese, you see in many respects she was even posthumously kind of the victim of, you know, an anti-gay agenda in some elements of the police department. And that was very common at the time back then. So I recognize that historically there are all these communities, including gays and lesbians and bisexuals and transgenders that have been discriminated against. And I don't think there's anything wrong with celebrating the fact that that discrimination is much less prevalent these days. So sometimes that takes the play, you know, and that could take the place of, um, you know, different that could take the form of different ethnic pride days, uh, different ethnic days that aren't something pride day, like Chinese New Year or Columbus Day for the Italians or St. Patrick's Day for the Irish. Nothing wrong with celebrating the achievements and the accomplishments of people that have had a tough time over the last hundred years or beyond that. There's still something about Gay Pride Day that I've always found a little peculiar, which is that, sure, you should be proud to be gay, but, I mean... I don't walk around saying I'm proud to be a heterosexual. I I mean, I'm just as proud to be straight as somebody might be to be gay. So I don't necessarily get why there's all this advertised pride in who someone sleeps with. But my attitude, like with most things, is if it makes you feel good, go ahead and do it. That's great. As long as everybody gets treated equally, that's great. And this story on Long Island has really caught my attention. There's a library on Long Island, the Smithtown Library. This story has changed a great deal in the last seven or eight hours. So if you heard about this story yesterday, listen closely because this story has changed. If you haven't heard anything about this story, listen very carefully. So a library on Long Island voted to remove all pride displays as well as pride-related books from its children's section. The Smithtown Library Board of Trustees 
voted four to two on Tuesday to ban any and all displays related to LGBTQ pride from children's areas at Smithtown Library buildings. Now, this move was met with fierce backlash and a call for action by advocates. The New York Library Association slammed Smithtown's move, calling it a direct violation of the New York Library Association's commitment to intellectual freedom and the freedom to read that libraries are entrusted to uphold. The organization reaffirmed its commitment to stand alongside the LGBTQ community, especially our LGBTQ plus youth who utilize libraries across the state as a refuge to foster their love of learning and of uh, their authentic selves. And I'm really, when I first saw that, I was really of two minds about this. Because really, when it comes to teaching children about sexuality and sexual orientation, my view is actually pretty close to Jamani Williams. I was watching Jamani Williams in this Channel 4 debate on the Democratic primary for governor, and the question was about these so-called don't-say-gay bills and whether or not children should be taught about a sexual orientation curriculum when they're very young. And I thought Jamani Williams really hit the ball out of the park with his answer. But we have to be clear. So the short answer, if you're going to ask, is yes, but we have to be clear. We just have to teach children at the level that they can understand and not above that. And so sometimes when this question is asked, we hear the word sex and we think we're going to be saying crazy things to young people, but we're not. And I thought Jamani Williams handled the question very well. You know, of course, it doesn't make sense to teach a five-year-old, a six-year-old, any lesson that involves a graphic sex scene. But is there anything wrong with teaching a six-year-old or a seven-year-old that, um, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, sometimes there are families that have same-sex partners? I don't know that there is. I don't think there is. But should the Smithtown Library really be forced and browbeat into displaying LGBTQ pride paraphernalia and having these books in the children's section? It's not as if they're banning all pride displays from the library, period. I can understand why people would have a problem with that. I don't think there's anything wrong with a library saying in the children's section, that's not necessarily the message that we want to impart to children. We think that's something that maybe that their parents should discuss with them and teach them. And, you know, the and look, I like, like the rainbow flag and I, I recognize the symbolism of the rainbow flag and that a lot of gay folks who have had a tough time over the years going back to the assassination of Harvey Milk. I uh, I recognize a lot of people view that pride flag as a source of, um, uh, you know, of, of a great deal of historic pride that we're not in the same place that we were in this country 50 or 60 years ago. But does that really need to be enforced and reinforced in a library children's section? Because what if you're the parent of a five-year-old or a six-year-old And you go to the library to get a children's book for your child or for a story time at a library or any of the many great activities that they have at libraries. 
and you're not ready to have a conversation with your child yet about sexuality and about um, sexual orientation. Is there anything wrong with the library saying that, okay, it's fine to have a pride display and all sorts of pride books in the adult section, but in the children's section, we're not quite quite ready to go there yet, and we're going to leave those discussions to parents for now. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, And so then... This ignited a firestorm. Governor Kathy Hochul tweeted Wednesday night that our public spaces should be accepting our young people, not rejecting them. Well, pause, Governor, pause. Who's being rejected for being gay? Does not having some pride decorations in the children's section reject a gay student or a gay child? I don't think so. Um, I, I think you're just not... I mean, I think if a library wants to have a flag, maybe the American flag, maybe the flag of the state of New York, maybe if Suffolk County has a flag or the city of Smithtown has a flag, maybe those are the flags that should be in public buildings, not a flag that's promoting a certain agenda, whatever the agenda is. I would be objecting if this was a um, a Black Lives Matter flag or a uh, an agenda of a group that I strongly agreed with. So the LGBT Network, a nonprofit that fights for the rights of LGBTQ people and their families in Queens and in Long Island, they planned a news conference on Thursday to oppose any anti-LGBTQ measures in libraries and schools. And that's where I guess I don't accept the premise of this opposition. Why is what the library was doing... Why is it anti-LBGT? And I I find some of the -the over-the-top histrionics from some of the LGBT activists really distasteful. Look, this was was a statement from this group that I just mentioned. Wednesday's bigoted move by the Smithtown Public Library – to remove displays and LGBT books enraged members of the LGBTQ community in Suffolk County, where over 100,000 LGBT residents reside. Close quote. A bigoted move? I don't think it's a bigoted move. I think it's a recognition that a lot of parents would prefer to handle this conversation with their children at a pace that the parents are comfortable with. Is that bigoted? I don't believe that it is. 800-848-WABC. Give me your thoughts. Here's what happened last night. Well, this very same library board, after being called to the carpet by everybody, they had an emergency meeting last night to address the ban, and they totally reversed the ban with a 4-2 to two vote. This was the statement. Uh, Earlier this evening, the Board of Trustees from the Smithtown Library rescinded our earlier decision to remove pride displays from our library's children's room. The majority of the board recognizes that our earlier decision was made without the time, care, or due diligence that a decision of this type deserves and that it was the wrong decision. Well, it was the wrong decision when the governor and the New York State Human Rights Association were threatening them, and when there was an opportunity, when there were folks trying to cut off funding. So, in some respects, I think that um, Gay Pride Day here at the radio station is the perfect day to have this discussion. 
And I'd be curious what you think of, one, the initial vote from the Smithtown Library Board of Trustees, and two, this reversal last night in an emergency meeting. Because it looks to me like they caved to this to this pitchfork crowd. And it, it's funny, in seeing how worked up a lot of the LGBT community got over this, it sort of makes you appreciate how far the gay rights movement has come. It used to be the gay rights movement would fight against discrimination for gays being denied uh, opportunity for opportunities for employment or housing or non-discrimination. Then marriage, marriage equality, same rights as everybody else. And now they're fighting over decorations in the children's section of a library. I mean, to me, I think it goes to show you that they've won a lot of the major fights. And I'm not even saying they. I'm going to say we, because I think I've been very consistently at the forefront of the gay rights movement for the last 23 years. Um, Before Obama was for gay marriage, I was. Before Bill and Hillary Clinton were. I still don't know if Bill is. Before Hillary Clinton was for gay marriage, I was. Before Biden was, I was. Um, So I count myself as a champion of the gay rights movement. I still just don't get what's so bigoted about a library saying we don't want pride decorations up in a children's section. What do you think? 800-848-WABC. Let me begin with Joe in Ron Concoma. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frank. How you doing tonight? I'm well, thanks. I was listening to you at first, and I didn't know which way you were going to go with this. I have a lot of gay friends also. And I believe that everybody has a right to do what they want to do, like you feel. But I also agree with the library. And uh, I grew up in the Smithtown School District. They're very ultra-conservative over there. I don't think um, libraries or schools should promote to young children uh, stuff like this. I think it should be, like you said, uh, discussed between uh, parents and the child. I mean, if a child feels that they are gay, then, you know, I think it's the parents that should help that child not be influenced by something they see up at a library or at a school or being pushed into. Well, like, Joe, what if there was a straight pride month, right? What if there was a pride, you know, what if a bunch of activists got together and they said they feel that uh, traditional heterosexual couplehood is under attack and they wanted to rally something for straight pride month and there was a straight pride flag and there was a real movement to celebrate the, the, the pride that straight people have in being straight and that the straights want to announce to everybody that they have sex with the opposite sex. I would be just as opposed to, to not, not, I'm not opposed, I would be just as in favor of a library having the right to say we don't want any straight pride paraphernalia in our children's section either, because maybe you don't want to have that discussion with your kid just yet. I, I agree, Frank. A hundred percent. Why don't we just keep it back? You know, when we, we were growing up, I know you're a little bit younger than me. And when you went to the library, you were reading about, you know, uh, famous explorers and stuff like this. This was never promoted. I think we need to rewind the clock 10, 15 years, maybe 20 years and go back the way it was. It was simpler times. Uh, get rid of these 
cell phones and these iPads and get outside and play and uh, remember dinner with mom and dad. That doesn't happen anymore. It's all about fundamentals, God, and, you know, uh, pride. And whatever you are, whether you're straight or you're, you're gay, there should be pride in that. And I feel that it's all a breakdown in the family. That's what I think it is. There's no more guidance, and it's sad, Frank. Thank Have you. Have a great weekend. Thanks, Joe. You too. I, I, think it's, I think it's a separate issue from breakdown of the family. I think it's a fact that nobody wants to stand up to something that they perceive to be the PC attitude. And for whatever reason, the LGBTQ movement is very PC right now, even for children. And I think nobody wants to be wants to say, I'm going to respect parental choice at the expense of being politically correct. I think that's more what it is. Steve in Manhattan. Hello. Who even goes to a library? Hey, Big Frank, first of all, you had Julian Assange's uh, brother on earlier tonight, so I know the CIA and the KGB are uh, bugging your phone lines. Naturally. So the CIA, if I know you're listening. My name is Curtis Lewa. First of all, the hard left has captured everything, folks. They've, ca- they've obliterated everything, except for winning all the elections. That's what they want to do next is win all the elections. November will just be a speed bump. This Republican establishment is honeycombed throughout the candidates in November. But the thing is, the hard left couldn't care less what you think. They want to poison the minds of little kids. They want to turn family members against each other. They want to turn the kids against the parents because the kids will become, here's a good word, brainwashed, and they'll actually turn on their parents. They'll start calling their parents' names. Um, Where are the the school teachers and everybody when the kids are being taught all this nonsense about – you know, basically porn. They turn classes into into porn classes for young kids. They were teaching them, calling the white people the R word. Where were the teachers in the schools, you know, talking to family members about what's going on? You, you didn't really hear anybody speaking out about this. So I really believe, uh, Frank, when the hard left captures New York State, like this guy, Jumani Williams, when he's a Frank, you'll be long gone. You'll be doing your show from Tennessee. Come on, knock it off. I, I will not be doing my show from Tennessee, unless I'm publicly disgraced. But even if I'm publicly disgraced, I think they would still accept me in Atlantic City. They accept everybody in Atlantic City. That's an accepting community. Uh, Anne is in Bergen County. Hello, Anne. Uh, yes, hi, Frank. Um, I am definitely in your corner regarding uh, the school, the library uh, situation for children. I think that um, living in New Jersey with the new uh, sex education uh, curriculum, I think that children really need to be focused on other things. They don't need to be focused on sexuality. Uh, They need to learn. They need to be educated in other kinds of things. Too much too soon for the children. And um, I kind of get equated to uh, the situation where, uh, you know, they were talking about legalizing marijuana for for, um, health issues. And now we've got states like uh, Washington, cities like Portland, where we've gone from that issue to uh, hard drugs. 
and legalizing those. Well, so let, I think it's yeah, no, over the top. I, I get it, Anne, and let's put the drug issue aside because that's a whole separate can of worms with a whole bunch of different implications. If a, a library jurisdiction wanted to go a different route, if they said, hey, look, we want to have gay pride uh, flags in the children's section, you know, my attitude would be, okay, fine, that's what they want to do. What I think the Smithtown Library Board had a very reasonable thing. They had a vote. And the board member said, we don't want it in the children's section. And it looks to me like they were bullied by the governor, by the LGBT groups, and by the New York State Human Rights Association, and essentially threatened, if not directly by implication, with changing their tune on this. And I think that's a real shame. I think we have to respect, you know, the different, there's different community standards in different communities. What works in Smithtown may not work in uh, Brooklyn. What works in Batavia may not work in Baltimore. I mean, right? 800-848-9222, Rogers in Massachusetts. Hello, Roger. Yeah, my problem is that um, what context do, do, you know, grammar school children have to even understand what this means. There's, we, I listened to an audio uh, about a month and a half ago of a kindergartner teacher teaching kindergartners, trying to teach them the difference between transgender and cisgender, because when a doctor, when a baby is born, quote unquote, the doctor guesses um, uh, based upon what he sees, he makes the best guess whether it's a boy or girl. Most of the time they're right, but sometimes they're wrong. What, you know, uh, gender, little children have, what context? They don't even know what they're talking about. They don't know cars and trucks. They know animals. But the tra- gender, they have no context. It should be age appropriate, for crying out loud. And, and that goes the same thing with anything, just like taking second graders out uh, to uh, protest in the streets along with uh, Black Lives Matter. I think that was from like 10 years ago or something. It'd be really age-appropriate for crying out well, loud. Well, uh, thanks, Roger. I mean, based on all the articles that I've seen, it doesn't look like they were trying to force anything that wasn't age-appropriate into the Smithtown Library children's section. It, there's no no suggestion that they wanted graphic gay pornography in the children's section. I haven't seen that anywhere. So, uh, But if they decided that maybe they don't even want to have a sexual conversation with children um, and they want to leave that to parents for the time being, what's the harm in that? 800-848-9222. David is in the Bronx. Hello, David. Hello, Frank. Let me give you a little bit different perspective. This, in my opinion, is about tolerance. Because children start calling kids names, making fun of them for things like maybe the fact that they have two mommies or two daddies. And we need to do something to stop that. I think that's what this is mostly about. And I hear the intolerance in your callers and in some radio programs on your station. This is not a good thing for children. I can tell you from my own experience growing up on Long Island in the 70s and the 80s as an interracial child, which was very rare back then, being called the N-word in first grade for the first time. 
I can only imagine what it's like as a child to be made fun of because your parents happen to be gay. And I think this is what we're trying to prevent. And it's, if it's age appropriate, which apparently it is, why are these people so upset? They should ask themselves why this bothers them so much. Well, I think the fault lies with them. So, David, what about – and I, I think you make a very reasonable point. Nobody wants to see any, any child bullied for any reason because maybe they're gay, maybe they come from uh, uh, two gay parents – what about instead of emphasizing um, a, 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 an agenda based on sexual orientation, what about instead emphasizing in the children's section or among young people in general an anti-bullying agenda and making it clear to students that um, being nice to one another and not bullying people for any reason, including, um, you know, somebody's familial status or somebody's racial status, that that's what people should do. Why does it have to be uh, what's what's wrong with prohibiting essentially a celebration of sexual orientation from the children's section? I wouldn't have a problem with that, but listen to your callers. They're saying that they're trying to teach kids, you know, graphic sexual stuff. That's not what this is about. Why don't we, if we can be honest on these topics, I think we can go very far. The reason I like calling your program, even though we don't agree on most things, is because you're a reasonable person. I think reasonable, intelligent people, if we actually talk about these things, can come to reasonable conclusions without name-calling and browbeating each other. Well, and thanks, David. I, I appreciate that, and I always enjoy your, uh, your calls as well. I agree with that, and I think that's kind of what the Smithtown Library Board tried to do, ha- come to a reasonable conclusion based on a reasonable um, conversation. But unfortunately, it looks to me like they were demonized around the state and forced with a monetary gun to their head to change their view. And I don't think that's right. I I mean, I think if we're for tolerance as a society, we should be for tolerance. And I think that tolerance ought to extend not just to people's race, not just to people's gender, not just to people's sexual orientation, but to people's belief systems. And the fact that some parents want to take their five-year-old, their six-year-old, their seven-year-old to a library and not need to have a conversation just yet about what um, what sexual orientation is. I mean, I don't think that that's unreasonable. And uh, I think uh, your, your philosophy, David, about reasonable people coming to reasonable conclusions, I think that's great. And That's why we have library boards in the first place. And I just think it's a shame that they were, in my view, bullied in a very intolerant manner into changing their view. You know, one of the people that I really admire, even though, and I've talked about him many times before, um, one of my, the people that I really admire and have always admired, and I got to meet many times over the years and interview a few times, was Ed Koch. And there's a wonderful documentary about him It's called Koch. And it deals a little bit with his sexuality, not much. But there's this one scene, and they were filming him in 2010. And Ed Koch had endorsed one of my very good friends, Dan Donovan, for state attorney general. And 
Ed Koch goes to a Democratic group, and this woman is there, and she is letting Ed Koch have it. She is lighting him up. How dare you endorse Dan Donovan, not only a Republican, but somebody who's anti-choice? And Ed Koch doesn't miss a beat. Ed Koch says to this lady, why would I ever let um, somebody that I have, why would I let a disagreement over an issue of conscience dictate my endorsement over who the attorney general is? Nobody in Staten Island, which is where Dan Donovan was the DA at the time, ever complained that Dan did anything to hinder their reproductive rights. Um, you got to respect. Sometimes people have a disagreement on issues of conscience. And I think that's the case with gender and sexuality as well. I don't get why this library was forced to add gay pride books and decorations to the children's section. I don't think it's appropriate. All right. Um, 800-848-9222. A couple other people have been patiently holding. Pamela is in central New Jersey. Hello. Uh, yeah, I'll just I'll reverse topics, two topics real quick. And uh, in, in answer to the last phone caller, some of the books out there for younger children are and have been extremely graphic. And if people would just listen to the science, there are Piaget stages of development, child development, where you introduce certain things at certain levels. And uh, that is, you know, a point of reference that people need to look at in, in uh, dealing with libraries. Um, on the second topic, um, I wish your cat well and just remind people that um, there was an awful lot of animal dumping this winter and uh, and it continues because people can't afford their pets because of the economy. There are vouchers you can get out there. You can talk to your vet that you can't afford certain things and someone can work with you. And please, you know, try uh, and, and if you can take in these animals. I just took in two orphans this month. And it's, they've been a delight. And uh, sometimes feral cats, they're very scared at the beginning, but they are some of my most well-behaved cats in the house, the ones that are, have been feral. They they sort of mind their own business. They don't jump on things. They don't steal. They don't they, – they're so happy to have a home. So just a reminder that's, out there. That's, that's a great reminder, uh, Pamela. I'm glad you said that. Thank you very much. Appreciate the call. Hey, those of you that are on hold, um, you're welcome to continue holding. But we are going to do the $1,000 Minute in just a moment, where we give someone an opportunity to win $1,000 by uh, answering 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. Do you have what it takes? 800-848-9222. Be the seventh caller right now to 1-800-848-WABC. And if you are the seventh caller, we'll give you a chance to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. You get them right. You win thousand dollars simple as that straight ahead WABC. Frank Marano, 77 Bad mistakes I've made a few I've had my show
Queen singing We Are the Champions. Uh, you can always see the bumper music we play by joining our Facebook group. Just search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's also meant to be a forum for the issues that we're talking about on this show. Right now, Gino Batali and I are in the midst of a conversation about uh, the Supreme Court's use of judicial review. I think we're just about at the agree-to-disagree stage. All right, uh, without further ado, it is time for us to give one lucky listener a chance to win some money. It's time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. Thank you, Chris Libertini. Let's say hello to Gary in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Hello, Gary. Hello, Frank. How are you? I'm well, thanks, Gary. Appreciate you asking. Uh, Gary, um, you're familiar with this contest, right? Yes, I am. Okay, so timer will begin after we ask you the first question, and then uh, if you get a question right, just keep going, and we'll keep going, and we'll get through all these questions so that we can hit all 10 within 60 seconds, okay? Okay. What season are we currently in? Summer. On The Simpsons, who is the son of Homer Simpson? Uh, Bart. What WABC talk show host has written the bestsellers Killing Kennedy and Killing the Killers? Bill O'Reilly. What does three squared equal? Would you say that again, What does three squared equal? Uh, Nine. Who is the president of France? I'm sorry, Frank. I can't hear you. The president of France. I, I I don't know, Frank. Take a guess. La, uh, last name starts with an M. No, I, I can't get it, Frank. All right. Well, it's Emmanuel Macron is the president of France. Um, all right. Well, uh, I'm sorry you didn't win. You got up to question five. I'm going to put you on hold. Give Ryan your information, and we will uh, give you a consolation prize. Uh, just reelected, by the way. Just beat uh, Marine Le Pen in the runoff. She did a little bit better than she did five years ago, but she still came well short of uh, of beating Emmanuel Macron. Now, the, I just learned a few minutes ago that on the uh, WABC early news, Deb Valentine is not going to be here today. So I don't know where she is, but she won't be here. Instead, you are in for a treat in that uh, Frank Diaz will be here. He uh, doesn't usually come in this early, except when he's doing the WABC Early News. It's nice to see him. And he looks like he's in a mood for a lot of news. And uh, on the Bernie and Sid show, you will get to hear Congressman Andrew Garbarino. You're going to get to hear former Westchester County Executive Rob Astorino. And it is Gay Pride Day here at the radio station, so you are going to get to hear blogger, columnist, and media personality Perez Hilton will be on the show in the uh, 9 o'clock hour on the mighty Bernie and Sid show. Hey, speaking of people that um, are not here, Matt Blaze was not here yesterday. Uh, Matt, we were trying to remember why you said you were taken off. Do you care to reveal that? What was it? 
Felt like taking off. Why not? Yeah, right. You don't, no special reason. No. Really? Just decided to take one day. A random Once thir- in a while. Just a random Thursday. A random Thursday? That's how I do it. Okay. Uh, are you doing that anytime soon again? Uh, yeah. When, when is that? The week after next. I'll be off the whole week. Oh, the whole week. Well, that's not a random Thursday. That's not. Oh, well, I'll be off, but no. Okay. But probably. Come like September, October, just take a random day. All right. Well, um, why, not? why not indeed? All right. Go go, go crazy. All right. Hey, uh, by the way, you should uh, check out my Facebook page. I want to thank, we have a listener named Isaac. He emailed me. I am a big fan of Orson Welles as both a filmmaker, an actor, a personality, a columnist, a radio person. And uh, really, other than Brando, I find him to be one of the most fascinating people in the history of Hollywood. If I could dine with any two dead stars, it would be Marlon Brando and Orson Welles. I mean, can you imagine the meal we'd have, the three of us? And the wine, right? Paul Masson wine and all. And so Isaac sent me this surrealist short film called Hearts, uh, The Hearts of Age that Orson Welles did in the 30s. I watched it twice. I find it incredibly bizarre. Not bad. It's just bizarre. Apparently it's a parody of something. I watched it twice. It's eight minutes. I still don't get it. But if you're an Orson Welles fan and uh, and you want to watch it, I just linked to it on my Facebook page. You can check it out, uh, facebook.com slash Fan. That's facebook.com slash Fan. Hopefully you're doing something fun this weekend. I am officiating a wedding tomorrow. Uh, essentially, well, we're not technically related. Essentially, it's my cousin. And he's getting married. And um, I am the wedding officiant, and it's all the way out there in Jersey. I don't remember what community in Jersey, but it's it's way out there. It's about an hour trip from where I live. And then uh, we have the rehearsal dinner tonight, which Rachel is not going to. She's going to stay home with the baby and her cats. And so I'm going to do that drive to Jersey by myself tonight, rehearse the ceremony, drive back, and then uh, drive out with some other of my family members uh, tomorrow. So that's basically my weekend. Rehearsal dinner Friday, wedding on Saturday, and uh, pre- show prep on Sunday to be with you on Sunday night going into uh, going into Monday. That's the that's the plan. It is Friday, though, so that means we uh, today was pizza day. Now, Matt, I forgot that you're doing a low-carb thing now, so I forgot to make um, carb-conscious decisions for you. Yeah, it's okay. So you didn't have any of the pizza? No, I did. Oh, you did. What did you have? Which one? I had just a regular slice. Regular slice. Plain. I'm I'm a plain cheese plain pizza cheese. guy. The, yeah. So we got. Um, I, I did get a broccoli and like a, a spinach, spinach and broccoli. Nobody touched it. I had a slice because I felt like did. <laughs> I felt like you know I'm being kind of healthy by eating vegetables on the pizza. I I mean it's still got all as this long as bread. You, as long as you keep thinking cheese. that. Yeah, I know. There you go. But um, at least there's vegetables. Um, what was your opinion of the pizza today, Alex? I really like the margarita, and I that had... was a grandma. That was not a margarita. A grandma? Well, what is the difference? Uh, a margarita. I mean, a grandma is square. Uh, generally, it's super thin. Doesn't have to be. Uh, margarita doesn't have to be thin. It's rectangular or or, or square, and um, that's. Uh, I think that's it. It's basically like a, a thin. 
Sicilian almost. But I mean, it it's sort of the same ingredients as a margarita well, with I the mean, fresh tomato all, and the fresh they, mozzarella. Yeah, they all have. They both have tomato sauce and mozzarella. I don't think a grandma slice necessarily has to have um, have uh, basil on it, whereas a margarita does. Do you know who the margarita pizza was named for? No, not even the close. first first lady of Italy, and really? her name was Margarita, huh. and that's why the colors of a margarita pizza are green, white, and red because those are the colors oh. of the Italian flag. So it was created as a tribute to Italy's first big first lady. Wow. Well, you learn something new every day. You do indeed. I also did have the spinach and uh, broccoli, but I had a little bone to pick because I did want to try the, the cheese pizza, but I am, uh, it was, as, I mean, Blaze and Ryan would know, it's half cheese, half sausage. And I, uh, you know, I'm a little bit picky when it comes to pizza too, like Blaze is. I hate sausage, uh, on anything, really, but especially on pizza. And if it even touches slightly oh boy. anything, it's ruined. And some of the some of the sausage was overlapping oh with boy. the cheese slices. Well, some people were eating the sausage. Ryan, what did you try? Heathens. I had the granny pizza. Uh-huh. And I thought that was absolutely delicious. It was good. I had a slice of that and I had a slice of the vegetable. See, I don't like sausage either, uh, but um uh, on you know, on pizza. But um, I feel like, I don't know, nobody should be slave to my taste. So I try to mix it up and get a variety for folks. At least one plain option and then a variety of whatever other people want to try. But people are eating sausage. so That's fair. If I was the one buying the pizza, I would not have even come close to thinking to buy sausage. Yeah. Well. But that's me. One day when you buy pizza, we will see what pizza selection you make. Hey, I already have done that before. When When was that? It was it was actually when uh, right after Carmine was born, I was uh, I bought pizza because on a Friday because I was like, uh, uh, you know, oh that was nice. I want uh, I I missed out on it. Yeah, well, so did I clearly, because I wasn't. Here. I don't remember that. You don't remember? Yeah, of course you. I don't remember. No. Was I here? Yeah, of course you were. I was. Yeah. Oh. Any no documentation of this pizza purchase? I'll have to dig really far back into my DoorDash for the receipt, okay. but yeah. it's there. Fair enough. I think it was one of those personal pizzas that was yeah. right. <laughs> the Chicago yeah. personal pie. Very funny. By the way, there is a new batch of egg salad in the refrigerator for those of you that are carb conscious. I did my thing when I had my vegetable slice. I used the crust to make a little mini egg salad. Sandwich. You see, Diaz was just cheering when he heard about egg salad. Yeah, and uh, well, good, good. Yeah, there's still there's plenty fresh batch just made, so it's uh, it's quite good. All right, eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. If you want to comment, I am very proud of myself. So yesterday, I get the call. Around 1.30, 1.45. Now, I, I went to sleep late because I had to get my hair cut. Oh, by the way, so I go to get my hair cut yesterday. And every time I go, I, I'm more convinced that I need to go back to a different barber. And again, my guy is such a nice guy, and I think he does a good job. He's always got a good story. He's, a, he's very into being a father and a grandfather. And it's always a lot of atmosphere at that barber shop. I always get to overhear a lot of good conversations. He knows about baseball. We talk about baseball. He knows about all sorts of things. And so we're talking. And keep in mind, this this barber no longer accepts credit cards, right, or, or Venmo. I used to be able to Venmo him. So you have to give him cash. Now, I'm out of cash. I'm at a point in my life. Uh, I get paid today. So as of yesterday, I had no cash, no money, no cash. Couldn't go to the ATM and get anything. Done. Spent. Done. So I had to borrow $30 in cash from my wife. So I got I had to come up with $30 in cash to pay him. 
And you, we've already chronicled the difficulty getting an appointment with this guy. I think it's easier. It's actually easier to get an audience with Pope Francis than it is to get an audience with my barber. And then we're talking, and he's saying, yeah, how, you know, he was just at his son's wedding, and um, his son is moving to Jersey, and how he and his wife are downsizing. And they're moving to a, a, a second house that they own that's smaller and they're, now that all the kids are out of the house, they're going to sell the, the house they have. And so he says, my wife's not happy about it because there are so many memories. I said, oh, I understand that. He says, but it's too big. I said, I know the neighborhood that he lives in. He, t- he tells me. I said, well, I'm sure you'll be able to get a good price. He says, yeah, you know, I was talking to some realtors, and they think that we can probably get over a million dollars. Over a million dollars. The guy that cuts my hair has two houses, at least, that I'm aware of, and he's selling one for a million dollars. Now, God bless him. But uh, it's just, I feel like maybe I'm in the wrong business here. Maybe uh, maybe I should go study haircutting. Um, so that was that was today's job. So anyway, I got, I got home late because I had to go to the hair barber shop then I had to go to pick up my psoriasis medication. And, of course, I get to the drugstore, and the, the prescription was at a different CVS than the one I went to. But you knew there was going to be some drama. Fine. So he says, oh, give me a half hour. We'll get it back here. Okay. So I'm getting to bed much later than I normally get to bed. So I finally get to bed. Phone rings at 140. Now, that's got to be serious because my phone's on Do Not Disturb. So that means somebody's calling and calling and calling for it to ring while it's on Do Not Disturb. So I pick up. It's my friend Lauren, who's a close friend. And uh, and she says, hey, I'm coming to Staten Island tonight with Mayor Giuliani and Andrew Giuliani. We're going to greet people outside the Ferry Hawks game. We're going to have a great time. Come meet us. And I said, no, I can't do it. I have to tape my podcast today. I have to go in early. I have to put together this day bed. And I have to watch Young Carmine because my wife's going spray tanning with my sister. And she said, well, here's what happened. Here's the mistake I made. I called you while you were asleep. Give it a couple hours and then let me know what you think. And I still stuck to my guns and went with this trend of saying no to everything. This is my new thing now. I am I'm the new Matt Blaze. I am declining every invitation. Now, uh, I think whereas I'm not going to decline everything because then they don't realize how fun you are. But I'm going to make very sparing appearances in places social places. Obviously, if you got to be somewhere for work or for a wedding, that's different. But it's my new move. Tell me you're, not, you're not loving it. You love it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, it you, is you great. It. it is See? great. But but it's because I'm so busy doing other things. You know? I don't feel like you're as busy. Well, that's the whole point. Right? <laughs> it's <laughs> not to be busy. Right. Right. Nobody asks you for anything. But I want the people, when I do choose to accept a social invitation... To really feel honored that I'm attending, you know? It's like when Howard Stern goes on a TV show. Or Rush Limbaugh back in the day. They used to go on everything. Everything. Anywhere they invited, they were there. Then they got really selective. That's how I am with social invitations now. All right. 15 seconds of fame. Next, we are not going to be selective. You can um, ask a question about anything you want. You make a comment about anything you want as long as it's 15 seconds. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. WABC Frank Marano 77 WABC 
Thank you, Andy B., for our terrific theme song. Uh, hey, if you want to find me on Twitter, at uh, Frank Morano, you can do. I've been tweeting a lot of clever things, which I don't feel like are, are getting the recognition they deserve. Uh, for instance, yesterday I tweeted, the lesson the Adams team is teaching us every day, meaning Eric Adams, always have a homeless accountant. So you can blame them for all your paperwork errors. I still can't get over that. How do you think that would go over with the IRS? Why didn't you pay taxes on this building? Well, I'm sorry. Uh, my homeless accountant screwed up. I mean, I just I can't believe it. We just sit there and take it and nod like bobblehead dolls. I'm, it's crazy. All right, without further ado, and you can email me, as always, frank.morano at wabcradio.com, or even if you just wanted to be added to my email list, Drop me a line, and I'll e- I'll add you to my email list, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Uh, in the meantime, it is time for... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Faith. Neil on Staten Island. So what a bunch of pizza elite. One won't have sausage. One won't eat the broccoli and spinach. Send that pizza over here, Frank. I'll eat every slice and say thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, Neil. Fred in Brooklyn. Against homosexuality in any case, we were created male and female, and sex except within marriage is the only way to go. Tom and Yonkers. Twistedjustice at CNN.com. Twistedjustice at CNN.com. Twistedjustice at CNN.com. Mike in New Jersey. Good morning, Frank. Frank, the problem with the progressive left is enough is never enough. Give them an inch, and they'll take two. Rich in East Meadow. Good morning, Frank. Uh, Dave, the flag stands for a lot more than homosexual relationships and homosexual sex. Stop being disingenuous. You know that. Stay away from the kids and practice safe sex this weekend. Chris in the Catskills. If you're a registered Democrat in New York State, vote Antonio Delgado for lieutenant governor. If you live in... Assembly District 103, make sure you vote for Kevin Cahill. Let's stand up to the socialists and the dirty mailers from the working families. That slams the lid on things for today. The WABC Early News with Frank Diaz is next. Frank Moreno, good day. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.